Wanna go, pretty boy? Two minutes by yourself and you feel shame, you know, and then you get free. And welcome to the Fourth Line Voice Podcast. My name is Darren. Thank you very much for tuning in. Episode 10 of the big show, some enforcer-based podcasting. Sunday, so you know what that means. The uh, We're opening the vault on one of my old player interviews. And uh, today's will be uh, my interview with Sean McMorrow. You know, and everybody out there, I'm sure, listening, I mean, you know, old, uh, the Sheriff McMorrow there, he's played a uh, long time, played OHL, and then uh, was in the Rochester Americans, the American League for a long time, and then uh, went over to the UK, and then, of course, uh, on to the uh, Quebec League, LNAH, and Sean was a great guest. I recorded this, actually, pretty much a year ago today. Um, when was it? May 25th or something, last year. So, um but yeah, I know we we talked for a really long time, and uh, and we really cover all of Sean's career, and uh, and he goes in depth about his um, you know his prison chart or his prison time, and and it's uh, you know I was really proud of the interview, and, and Sean was a great guest, and uh, and and I you know I encourage you know while well, you're listening now, so uh, I think you guys will really dig it. Like I said, he's uh, goes in depth, and it's a long conversation, so I'll I'll keep this intro short, but. Uh, no, I hope everybody. Uh, I hope you go back and uh, and listen to the other um, nine episodes so far. Um, last um, Wednesday's guest was uh, Rob from the Bucket Drop Podcast, aka Bobby Longgrass, and uh, it's kind of a Doug Smithish type story. Um, um, you know, he played from the Rec League and went and played five games in the Federal Hockey League and or three games, pardon me, in the Federal Hockey League and dropped the gloves five times and. Uh, and but he was a good sport. He came on and uh, support the Bucket Drop podcast. Rob's a good dude, and uh, he told it was a good story. And uh, I had fun having him on. And uh, you know, and other than that, um, yeah, I've had uh, the, my vault guests have been uh, Morasti and Brad Wingfeld and Joey Tedarenko and Steve McIntyre. So um, I encourage everybody to go back and uh, and hopefully uh, you, you check out. Um, Check out the entire catalog of uh, of episodes, and uh, I want to thank everybody for um, tuning in. and And uh, like I posted um, um, on the chartable on the chartables uh, podcast, uh, you know, we ranked the 18th podcast in Canada. So that was that was really cool to uh, see that. I don't, you know, I, how much merit those charts have, I have no idea. But nonetheless, it was nice to see. Uh, see the name up there and, and, uh, and know that you guys, that there's folks out there listening and, um, it's greatly appreciated. And, uh, and I've gotten some really positive feedback and some messages from you guys, which is always, uh, which is always fun to read. And, um, yeah, like I said, just going forward here, here at the hockey podcast network, uh, like I said, we got all the, all the NHL teams are represented and Terry Ryan, myself and, uh, hockey to heroin, Brady Leavold and the, um, you know, lot, lots of stuff on the network for you guys to check out. By the sounds of it, I don't know, was hockey starting up? I don't know, we'll see. 
you know, so that'll, uh, that'll get the team podcast rolling again. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, other than that, the other, of course, you know, Alec, my boy over at five for fighting, um, you know, he's had some really great guests on lately. He's been killing it. Um, you know, I know, uh, why well, I won't review. I, I just got off the text message with him. So he just wrapped up an interview, uh, tonight that I think, uh, you folks will really like. And, uh, but no, he had like, he's had Tom Wilson on and Kevin Kaminsky and Rob Ray and, uh, on and on. No, he's been doing great. It was that uh, I've been on a show a few times. And I've lo- always have lots of fun talking to Alex. So, but, uh, of course, William over at the biscuit and Dan at the Hubei the Puck show. And of course, the Slewfoot hockey show finally got back up and rolling. And, uh, hopefully the Get the Gate guys will get going too. So that was always my plugs. And of course, Rob over at the Bucket Drop podcast. Um, I was actually just on there. We did the kind of a top 10. Everyone, like I said, everyone's getting into lists lately. So, and he's a Montreal Canadiens fan. So he had me on. We talked about my top 10, uh, Hab, Habs fighters. And, um, it was a fun discussion. I, I encourage you guys to check that out. Like I said, I know there's, yeah, spit and hit a hockey podcast these days. I mean, it's become cliche now, but, uh, you know, like I said, support the, the mom and pop podcasts. I mean, we're all fighting for airtime and, uh, you know, and I know there's only so much time in the day, but, uh, for people to listen, but and I, I know spit and chicklets will always get listens and everything else. And that's cool. But, uh, you know, support the, support the little podcast too. Like I said, we're all out here you know, doing it as a hobby, spending our own cash, trying to bring you guys some good content. And, and there's a lot of good content out there. And, I'm, you know, history of, well, there are history of hockey podcasts with Shane Guilfoyle. I mean, that guy does an unbelievable job. And, uh, you know, and I hope people would go out of their way to listen to his show with the amount of time and effort and research he puts in. You know, just, and you know, same with Alec. And I know banging the phones and sending messages out to the guys trying to get people to come on the show. You know, it's, it's um you know, and it takes time, you know, and, uh, you know, so hopefully it, uh, like I said though, but people have been listening and the response here so far since coming back and being on the network has been great. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll continue going forward. Hopefully I'm going to, like I said, I've talked to some players here. Hopefully we can get some on the phone and, uh, do some more player interviews and, uh, and then just, uh, you know, I think I, I might have a ranty into, I might have a ranty episode coming up here soon because, uh, a few things that are irritating me as well. But, uh, we'll see how that goes. But, uh, anyway, like I said, I'm on all the major platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all that stuff. All the, all the, uh, all the networks that the kids are listening to. If you could rate and review my show, though, it helps me out. It helps out in the listings and stuff, and, uh, it's greatly appreciated. Also, YouTube, 2,000 plus videos on there, Fourth Line Voice on YouTube. Always putting up new stuff. Like I said, old Zoltan, I just got your package. Thank you very much. And, uh, I was laughing. I put it on Twitter today. I had to, I had to get I had to get mid nineties Tri City Americans footage from a guy in uh, Slovakia. <laughs> That's pretty funny, but uh, no. So I should have some stuff I'll be uploading here soon. Uh, so, like I said, subscribe to the channel because then you'll get notified every time I'll put a new fight up. And uh, I think you guys will. Uh, I'm always you'll find something on that channel you like. I guarantee it. Just do a little search, type in any league you're looking for. I got lots of stuff up there. And uh, Fourth Line Voice on uh, Twitter. And, uh, hey, if you're not on Twitter, I know it's social media, and believe me, I get it, but, uh, there's a kind of a, a cool little fight community on Twitter, us, uh, you know, it's old farts that we uh, long for the days of yore, but, uh, uh, check it out, putting up old pictures all the time, and, uh, you know, any history of hockey fights, and when Probert was king, and, you know, we're all on there bantering back and forth all day, the hockey fight league, and, uh, you know, lots of fun, so, uh. But other than that, uh, I will shut up and get going because this, uh, this interview with Sean McMorrow is super long. 
but I hope you guys dig it, and it was a lot of fun bringing it to you the first time, so hope liked it so much, we'll do it twice here, so, uh, but uh, here we go for this, this Sunday's uh, From the Vault is uh, Sean McMorrow. All right, guys, thanks, take it easy. Is uh, the man they called the sheriff. Sean McMorrow. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm, I, I really appreciate it. Hey, man. Thanks for taking the call. Well, like I was talking to you before we got going, uh, you know, we're going to just kind of timeline the timeline your career. And, uh, I mean, and, and, you know, you made the rounds. You were everywhere. And uh, we're going to get down to it. We're going to talk some teammates and some opponents and, uh, and just get your feelings on a few things. So are you ready to roll? I sure am, my friend. All right. Uh, so, well, we'll start with, you know, you got to go from the beginning here. Um, so did you grow up in Ontario? Well, I was actually, I, I was born in Vancouver. Um, my parents both got head job offers there um, as a young couple, so they moved out to Vancouver from Ontario. Um, me and my three other siblings were all born there. And then when I was six years old is when I came back to Toronto with my family. Um, so I've been in Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto, since I was six years old, minus all the hockey cities that I've lived in. Okay, so you, you obviously you grew up playing and stuff in the Ontario minor hockey. Um, That's right. Um, so while well, I just I know well, we'll just go right into it. So um, so at 16 years old, um, I noticed you were in the uh, Ontario Junior Hockey League in Pickering, correct? Yes, yes, that's right for the Pickering Panthers. Yeah, um, which was very convenient for me because I, I actually live in the eastern part of Scarborough, which is probably about 15 minutes from Pickering. Okay, and. Uh, now, as obviously fighting was allowed in that league, correct? I, I'm, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Was like fighting was allowed in that league? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, it was. The only thing with the fighting, though, is that after the first fight, you got a game misconduct. Okay. So I guess it was kind of allowed, but you know, yeah, you got well, the game misconduct, so you had to leave after the scrap, unfortunately. Yeah, well, well, this leads. Actually, I should have led with this first. Now, kind of going into it, did you make a, a conscious decision to be to be like play, take the enforcer role, or did you kind of fall into it, or uh, by accident, or how did that all? Like, were you kind of an aggressive kid growing up, and this, saw this as a way to further your uh, hockey? Okay, career? well, I mean, I I think the best way to explain it is probably the fact that I was always one of the bigger kids on my teams growing up. And when, like, how it worked with my kind of era, with, like, probably from, like, the 82s, like, like you know, uh, give or take two or three years each way, yep. is when we go into those prospect tournaments for the OHL, like the OHL prospect tournaments, after Bantam, those are usually the times that we had to drop the gloves. And it was usually guys just proving that they were able to do that, okay? So... After I finished with Bantam, which was with the Don Mills Flyers in the GTHL, you know, I had an opportunity to play Tier 2 before the OHL as a 16-year-old. And when I made the Pickering Panthers, you know, originally I was just a, a stay-at-home defenseman, but I got the opportunity to take on a bigger role on the team, which was to stick up for my teammates. So now the interesting thing with that is that I've always been kind of like, not a shy guy, but like I've, I've, I was never an aggressive hockey player growing up. I was big. I could make some big hits and stuff like that. But I was never one of the more aggressive guys on the team. Definitely not one of the better body checkers. 
And, you know, when it comes to chirping and all that kind of stuff, I was okay at it, but I was never one of the better ones. Once I got to the age of the Pickering Panthers at 16, and I saw that I could increase my role on the team, the reason why I continued to do it was because I was just very successful at it. I'd never really fought before on the ice other than, you know, just the months previous for those prospect tournaments. And my first, I would say my first 10 fights were all straight out victories and my team, you know, their, their, their jaws were dropping. So when I saw that reaction, that's where your confidence kicks in. And you know that, you know, this is something that, you know, that I'm good at, that I can continue to do. My teammates are happy with me. My coaches are happy for me. So why wouldn't I continue to do it and be an even more important part of my team? So it was, it was quite interesting. Like I kind of just molded into that on the Pickering Panthers, being known as a guy that can scrap at any time, but that was very, very, very um, good at, at, at doing that. You know, like, like, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard the stories of guys like, you know, uh, you know God bless his soul, uh, Derek Bugard. The thing with Derek Bugard is the guy was so big, but if you ask anyone that played in the WHL or that's from Western Canada, nobody thinks that he was that great of a fighter until he got to the NHL. He was just a big guy that everybody wanted to take on, but nobody really thought that he was even that good at fighting. Where with me, I just did so well at the fighting that that just, that just kind of made me such a bigger asset for my team, and that's why I continued to do it. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, if you have if you have success early, obviously it uh, you know it'll it'll motivate you for sure. Um, exactly. I, yeah, I noticed in that league, there's a couple couple names stuck out. I was just kind of checking out the different rosters, but uh, a tough dude, um, and I know he follows the Twitter account, and I've talked to him a few times, and a good dude was uh, Jeremy Cornish. Did you ever have any run-ins with him? Um, I never, I've never personally faced Jeremy Cornish, but, but I'll tell you what, like, he's a little bit older than me and, and, and I actually followed the guy and, and, and have a lot of respect. You know, the, the thing about me is, is, is like, not only do I play, but I'm, I'm a really big fan of the sport as well. So like, even when guys that are just a couple years older than me, you know, like I really looked up to those guys, especially guys that like played in the OHL and stuff like that. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to go to St. Michael's College in Toronto when I was in grade 10. Um, the normal age for an OHL or rookie is grade 12. So just two years above me, I was looking at these guys like they were idols because that was the first year that St. Mike's was in the OHL, uh, the St. Michael's majors. So, you know, you had guys like, um, I'm trying to remember now, but, you know, I'm having a little bit of a brain freeze, but the majors had probably about two or three tough guys on, on their team that year. And, you know, I looked at these guys like they were gods, right? But they were only two years like older than me, maybe three years. So, yeah, Cornish was one of those guys um, that I looked up to, but, but unfortunately I never, I never got uh, to square up with him. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, well, there you go. Well, like you said, well, speaking of the OHL, yeah, so the next year, 1999-2000, 17 years old, and you cracked the uh, Sarnia lineup. Um, now, going into that camp, what was, um, you know, Mark Hunter was the coach. And yeah. uh, what was your what was your first impressions of the Ontario Hockey League? Okay, well, um, I was I was a hand picked Mark Hunter guy. He was the he was the coach and GM of the Sarnia Sting at that time, 
And, you know, I was lucky enough to be a pretty high draft pick, actually. Like, I was, I believe I was 33rd overall, um, which is the middle of the second round. I think there was 20 teams in the OHL at that time. So, you know, I was the 13th pick in the second round, which was pretty high, because I think, I don't know, the OHL has a lot more rounds in the draft than the NHL does. I think at that time, there might have been 13 or 14 rounds. So, being a mid-second rounder, you know, like, like it was, it was, it was a great feeling, you know, and when Mark Hunter brought me in, um, I knew what type of player that he was. And I knew that he tried to build his team to a similar style that he played in the NHL. So Mark Hunter is one of the guys in hockey that I probably have like some of the most respect for. Um, he respects you. If you work hard, he respects you. If you're willing to get your nose dirty and if you're willing to do just those two things right there, then you're in his good books. So it was kind of easy for me being a bigger guy that was willing to do it, right? And Mark would, would recognize that. So, like, I remember, I remember one night standing out pretty good in the beginning of that rookie year. It was a game that we were playing the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds in Sault Ste. Marie. And... It's tough to play in Sault Ste. Marie, especially at that time. They had guys like Tim Safiris. They had Mike Mazuka. They had a bunch of tough guys on their team. And I was a rookie. I remember it was like 6-1 Sault Ste. Marie. A couple of fights broke out at the end. I was one of them. We had our long six- to seven-hour bus trip back to Sarnia from the Sioux. And because we did so shitty in the game, uh, part of my language... Um, no, you, know, you, can, you Mark, can say you can say whatever you want. Don't worry about it. All right, right on, right on. So this is a cool podcast, then. Yeah, I'm so, trying. <laughs> so, right on, right on. So, so Mark wasn't happy with with the outcome of the score of the game. So what he made us do was he made everyone sit in the dressing room after we brought our bags in from the bus, and then he went around the room and he wanted us all to say what, how we thought we played that evening. <laughs> so. What he would do is the player would start to answer the question, and then, of course, he would cut in, and he would say what, how he thought we played. Now, he had the same grade system that they do in the NHL. In the NHL, after every game, they grade you out of five, every, every personal player. So a five is good and one is terrible, okay? So he was asking us what number we thought we were, and then he would tell us what number we were in his mind. So when it came around the room to me, I remember it clearly. He was like, Sean McMorrow, Sean McMorrow did his job tonight. Sean McMorrow didn't get that much ice time tonight, but when he did go out there, he did his job, he got his nose dirty, and he sacrificed for the team. I give Sean McMorrow a 4.5 tonight. You know what I mean? So just, just being willing to go out of your way in the sacrifice, Mark was one of those coaches that rewarded that. So me and him got along really well. So now what the problem was, is that, and this is kind of an interesting story. A lot of people don't know this, but at that time, the Cicerelli brothers actually owned Sarnia. The year that I was a rookie in Sarnia was the first year that Dino was retired, who was obviously out of the three brothers, the one that went the furthest in hockey. Dino and Mark don't like each other. Dino Cicerelli and Mark Hunter, still to this day, they don't get along, they don't like each other, they didn't like each other on the ice, they don't like each other off the ice. So when Dino came back after his retirement, he wanted to have a bigger role in this ownership of this junior team that him and his brothers owned. But it just so happened to be that a guy that he really didn't like, that you know he wasn't a part of the hiring process because he was still playing, 
um, in Tampa Bay the, the previous years. But now he's back, and he has a guy that he bumps heads with running the show for one of the teams that he owns. Sarnia didn't do that well. We did okay. We were like a 500 team, but we were supposed to be competing for a championship that year. So at Christmas time, they decided to axe Mark, like to fire him. And when we came back from the Christmas break um, from, from our homes, you know, we were told that, that Mark was fired and that there'd be a lot of changes made. So I was traded shortly after that, but me and Mark obviously were, were, were reunited later in my OHL career, obviously with the London Knights. So it actually, um, it, it's funny how things work. That's why they say like, you know, never burn bridges because you could be, you could be in the same situation a year or two down the road that you are now with the people that you're working with. Right. Absolutely. Well, then speaking of the trade, of course, you go to Kitchener, and the interesting yep. the interesting thing at Kitchener that I found, and it's sort of a theme in your career, speaking of, that you kind of, you intertwine with these guys, a couple of your teammates were uh, Derek Roy and Andrew Peters in Kitchener. Yes, 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 yes And of yes. course, you went on to Rochester and Buffalo and et cetera, et cetera with those guys, but what was your first... Uh, well, you know, like I said, we were obviously a kind of a, obviously a tough guy podcast. What was your first impressions of Andrew Peters? And, uh, and like I said, you guys were in Rochester and Buffalo and sort of, you know, side by side a lot of times. What, what are yeah. your uh, feelings on Andrew? Well, me and Petey are still friends to this day. Um, Andrew comes from an incredible family. Um, to add on to what you just said, his brother, Jeff Peters, yep. I also played with a couple of years in Rochester as well. So I know the family really well. Um, you know, I first met Petey, obviously, in Kitchener, like you just mentioned. Um, Petey is a very, very, very funny guy. He's a very good guy in the dressing room. And, of course, he has a lot of respect for anyone that does the, a similar job to what he does. So it was very, very easy for him being a veteran and me being a rookie for us to get along just because we had very similar roles, even though I was a defenseman at the time and he was a left winger. So Petey was a really high pick for the Sabres. I believe he was a second rounder and he was drafted at the time. And I believe that was his, the year that he had to sign like that June was the deadline for him to sign after the season that we played together um, that year in Kitchener. So he was, he, he would be pretty nervous some games when he knew Buffalo was there because he knew that, you know, that his window was closing on if he was going to sign or not. So there was times that were pretty nerve-wracking for him. But overall, you know, me and Petey got along really well. And it was very interesting that we ended up hooking up again. Um, my first year pro, of course, in Rochester, you know, again, Petey was a veteran and I was a rookie once again, uh, being his third year and my first year in Rochester. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, I was going to bring up some uh, couple of couple of your opponents. I think uh, were pretty early on, and I noticed this the 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 one character was sort of a theme in your in your first year uh, was Nick Jones. You yes. got, uh, and I yes. was and uh, being out west here. I mean, obviously back then we didn't see any OHL stuff, but I have since gotten tapes and or DVDs and YouTube now for the for the young kids listening and uh yep. and, and I've seen a lot of uh Nick Jones's stuff and I was a big fan of Nick Jones that guy could go how was yes. uh how were your battles with Nick Well I'll tell you what like Nick Jones is probably one of the tougher guys that I faced in junior yep. um got a lot of respect for him what I liked about him the most is that he was one of those guys where 
like for example, like like I played like I played a long time pro, and like there's certain guys that you play against that even though you battle against them almost on a nightly basis, they have that respect and they know that it's just the job is the reason why you're doing it. That there's not really any hatred between the guys. It's two guys that are tough guys that are both just trying to get momentum for their team and to stick up for their teammates. And the way that they got to do it is against each other because they're the two toughest guys on each side. And that was the situation with me and Nick. And I remember one time, I remember, I remember the first time that I fought Nick, um, he got me pretty good. And, you know, the key to a tough guy or a fighter in any sport is you have to understand that it is absolutely impossible to win every fight. It's, a, it's absolutely impossible to do well in every single fight. You know, you can't win them all. That's the famous saying. But you can win the majority of them, and you can have a good record, and you can do well most of the time. But it's not going to happen like that every time. So the sooner you can accept that, the easier it is to be successful. Because what happens with some guys is they're, they're such highly touted guys, and they're supposed to be the toughest ever, and then one guy gets them really good, and they're never able to recover from that because of their ego or whatever reason it be. If a guy that's super tough, that knows that you can't win every single time, that gets knocked the one or two times, he just bounces back up and he does even better the next time and the next time and the next time. So early on with me and Nick, he got me pretty good. And I think in our first one that we got, we went back and forth, back and forth. But I think by, you know, by the third, fourth, fifth time that we fought, I remember one time us fall, we both fell to the ice. And, you know, we both had a good grip on each other. And then, you know, he was older than me, right? So it was kind of like, you know, I was kind of, you know, was reacting to what he was doing after the fight was done type of thing. And, you know, he said to me, hey, McMorrow, I got to give it to you, buddy. You're one tough fucking kid. Fucking let's have a good one next time, buddy. You got me really good this time. And, you know, and when he said something like that to me, it just kind of, humanized the whole situation and it just, and and the respect level that I had for Nick was so much better than that because like boxing, like MMA, like, like hockey fighting, like this is a sport, you know? And like, it, 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 there's no, there's sometimes it gets a little personal stuff like that can happen between players. But most of the time you're just doing the job for your team. You're just trying to change the momentum in the arena and in the game. And, you know, it just so happens that you have to do that against the toughest guy on the other side. So it's better if you respect that guy than to try to build up a hatred for him. Because if you do that, then, 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 then that's when it comes back to you for when you lose that odd fight. But because you have so much hatred, you're never really able to bounce back. If you look at it like a competitive sport, like a boxing and MMA, that's the way hockey fighting should be looked at. Then you can look at it where, okay, even a guy that wins the Cy Young in, in Major League Baseball, the best pitcher, he's got a couple losses on his record. You know what I mean? But he's the best pitcher. Yep. You know what I mean? And that, that's where the, competitive, the competitiveness comes in. And, like, just to add to that, like, you know, when, when the grandfathering started up, you know, after the lockout year in 2004, 2005, and they started doing mandatory visors and all these little rules to try to bump out the fighting, you know, it was interesting that instead of, and with the lawsuits and all that type of stuff, it was interesting that in the sport of hockey, you know, you got, you got a special teams coach. Like, this is at the pro level. 
you got a power play coach, you got a penalty coming coach, you got a goalie coach, you got a strength and conditioning coach. But up until 15 years ago, you had two tough guys pretty much on every single NHL and AHL roster. But where was the coaching for that? There's two goalies on every team. There was two tough guys on every team. There's a goalie coach. Why wasn't there a coach that could coach guys to protect themselves, to avoid getting the concussions, to learn how, if you're going to fall, how to fall so you're not banging your head on the ice? Where was all that? There's, this is a million-dollar business in the AHL and NHL. So why didn't they have tough guy coaches as well when the tough guy was the favorite player for 80% of the season ticket holders and was the reason why most people came to the game 20 years ago? Why? So, so that, that's my question. When, they, when, when all these guys are, are, are interviewed, like Riley Cote and, and all these guys that want to talk so much about, about the concussions and all that, why aren't, why aren't they talking about that? Why aren't they talking about someone that can help you defend yourself to avoid the concussions? Why aren't they talking about how to really hold your hand so you don't break it? Because there's ways to do that to avoid getting broken. There's ways to fall so you don't hurt yourself. There's ways to do a lot of things. And I think if the NHL actually looked into the, some of those things when it was still a, 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 a very important part of the game, I think it would have avoided all this lawsuit stuff and all that because even the guys that did get seriously hurt, the NHL could say, look, you know, we had a, we had a self-defense guy on every team to avoid, you know, guys getting seriously hurt. So if you were in the small percentage of the guys that, that did get the head injuries and couldn't continue, you know, we're sorry about that, but we did the best we could to protect you guys. And, you know, that wasn't the case. You know what I mean? So it, 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 it's kind of interesting. I actually heard that idea the first time, I don't know when it was, about 10 years ago, where a guy was like, you know, there's all these little coaches during the team. How come the tough guys never had a coach? How come they were never able to practice how to protect themselves and, and so on and so forth? You know what I mean? And, and that just goes, that would have been even more towards the competitiveness of the combat in, in the sport. You know, because we would have been protected. You know, maybe we could have had a special insurance for the guys that, that head over 10 majors a year. Maybe they would have qualified for a certain insurance. There could have been a lot of options, man. And, and you know, the commissioners in the NHL and AHL, I mean, they just took it for granted. You know, they thought that these guys were tough guys, that they can handle it on their own. But yet, you know, the goalies get special treatment. There's even a face-off coach on most AHL and NHL teams. They have a coach just for face-offs. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. The fighting was very, very important 10, 15, 20 years ago at the top levels. So I just find it bizarre that there was no protection for the players. And, you know, if me and Petey had a guy that was teaching us how to hit the bag and, and how to make a fist so we didn't break our hand and how to fall and everything that I mentioned in the last 10 minutes, you know, I bet you me and Petey would have had so much less injuries over our career, you know? So it, it, it's, it's, it's a talking point, you know, I'm hoping that people hear this kind of stuff and, you know, with all, all the BS that's going on around it and, you know, all the sensitivity around it. I mean, I don't know, I don't know who would have been responsible for that, but it would have been a great idea, especially for the tough guys. And tough guys would have been much more comfortable. And then guys, guys, and then, and then, and then saying that, 
then you would have had a guy that would have been able to, you know, to, to alarm the people that needed to be alarmed for, for the guys that, that, that might have got depressed and all the stuff that comes after, you know, having to do something that maybe they, they really shouldn't have been doing because they weren't cut out for it. You know what I mean? And there, there would have been a coach to say, hey, look, you know, I, I really don't think this guy should be doing this. You know, he's freaking out every time after a fight. And, you know, I've never had a guy that did this before, so maybe we need to trade this guy or send him down, but I don't think it's in his best interest to be doing this. You know what I mean? It would have been someone to kind of protect, the, you know, the tougher players. So I know I blabbed a lot about that a lot, but, but that's just like, you know, I'm, I feel pretty strong about that, so I thought I'd bring it up at this point. Oh, hey, that's, uh, that's what you're here for. Um, yeah, it's an interesting take on it. I've actually never looked at the, uh, you know, the uh, situation from that from that angle. That's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And like you said, yeah, there was no coach, you know, there's coaches yeah, for there, everything there, else. there was absolutely nothing. It was just like, it was just winging it. It was just, it was oh. just teams signing a couple guys that they knew could do the job. There was nothing to help them with their job. But yep. every other role on the team, there was help, except for the tough guys. And I just find that that's very interesting, you know? Yeah. Really. And, and now with lawsuits and all that type of stuff, I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think that was probably the biggest mistake, that they didn't have a tough guy coach. Because I'm telling you, I mean, the Buffalo Sabres, for example, they had two legitimate heavyweights on the team all the way up until pretty much Andrew and Andrew Peters and Eric Bolton. That was the, that, the, the end of that era for the Sabres. All the way up until that point. So, so we're talking, you know, almost, I think it may be, maybe 2000, 2008, 2009, 2010. That might have been maybe the last year that Andrew and Eric played together on Buffalo. And then it kind of went down to one. And then you know what happened after that, right? So, yep. well, there you go. Yeah, you could be on. But I, 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 I know I changed the timeline a little bit, so no, we can right. continue where we were. That's no problem. Oh, hey, okay. Uh, now I'm lost. Where was it? Oh yeah, no, I was gonna say some uh, other notable names. I was gonna throw at you from the from the uh, league at that time. Um, and I know the video is up on my YouTube channel, and it's got a lot of play over the over the last couple of years when I put it up. And and it was a great fight between you and Johnny Erskine. Oh yes, oh yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, I remember it pretty clearly, and and you know, like it was a pretty big deal to come into the Ice House. That was the name of the arena at the time in London, um, before the Labatt Center. Um, I actually, when I got traded to London, it was still the Ice House. But it was really intimidating coming into the Ice House because, you know, London, I, I would say Johnny Erskine and Andrew Peters were probably rated like the two toughest guys in the league. Um, you know, London had a, had a, a Calvary of, of, uh, of guys that were right behind Erskine that, you know, that could per- pretty much handle themselves against anyone in the league as well. So I remember, I remember at that time, you know, that was my draft year, right? And I remember talking to certain scouts after certain games and then mentioning, Hey, you know, like, uh, you got London coming up. It might be a good idea to see how you see how you square against that John Erskine. You know what I mean? So his name was brought up a couple of times. So in the back of my mind, it was always there that it was going to happen. And it just so happened in the game. Um, you know, right now, one of my best friends that I have is Dan Sullivan, who was actually playing for the London Knights at the time. He's a kid from Toronto. And, you know, Sully and me talk about this uh, sometimes because Sully's pretty good friends with, with John Erskine as well. 
And he remembers it clearly because, you know, he was on the team when it happened in London. And that shift, I had actually taken a full shift. And if you watch the video, you can tell that I was, that it was, that it was a line change and I was going off. So my biggest mistake was accepting the challenge at the end of the shift. That was my biggest mistake. I think that the fact that it was John Erskine, the toughest guy in the league, I think my adrenaline overcame any type of fatigue from, from the previous shift. And it didn't even matter at that point because like a kid that grew up in Toronto, if you have a chance to fight Ty Domi and you're a role player in hockey, it doesn't matter how tired you are. You're going to find the energy to fight the guy that you've been watching growing up. Right. Oh yeah. It's not the, it's not the exact same thing with Erskine, but it's similar because the man was older. He had the respect and, and he had the reputation, right? Yep. So, I was doing the line change. I was about to go off. I think Erskine was like, he knew that it was a good time. He probably thought that he was just going to crush me because I was a rookie. And, you know, he'd probably been sick and tired about hearing about this, about this rookie that people thought was, you know, up and coming. And, you know, he, he, he threw the shoulder into me. I fell. It's actually pretty funny when you watch the video. And I get right back up and I'm like, you know, screw this. We're going. You know, this is John Erskine. He just, he just, <laughs> You just put the shoulder into me, so we're going to go, right? So, anyway, so we went. I got pretty lucky in that fight because it probably took him probably about, you know, 80% of the fight to try to get my helmet off. I don't know how my helmet stayed on, but somehow it stayed on. I think that protected me pretty good throughout the fight. I was able to land some good ones. Johnny got me with a bunch of good ones. I definitely give the decision to him. But I thought being a rookie, being able to hold my own, and just the timing of the fight, um, I thought that it was kind of a little victory for my team in its own, just because I was able to stand up to them. But you know, being being older and being being a guy that did the role for a long time, I definitely give Johnny that decision on that fight. But as a rookie, I, I had a little victory in my own self because I didn't get hurt. I was able to hold my own. And, you know, I fought the toughest guy in the OHL as a 17-year-old, right? So that was my own little personal victory. Um, and and I'm, I'm really glad that it happened because it gave me a lot of confidence moving forward. Yeah, no, that was, that was a great tilt. And, uh, well, before we, yeah. move on, before we move on to that year, there's a character in the o, in the, that was around the OHL that you played against and everybody will know, and I have to throw his name at you, what your, what your opinion is uh, playing against him is Sean Avery. <laughs> I had a feeling that you might say that. Yeah. Now, 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 Sean, Sean Avery, like, okay, so, so this is the most interesting story I could tell you about Sean Avery. So now we're going to rewind a couple months because I was still in Sarnia. Um, this was, this was very fresh because my first year was, was Sarnia and Kitchener, right? It was half and half. I got traded at the deadline. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in Sarnia. I don't know how many games I was in. It could have been as low as five or 10 games into the season. Um, and, you know, like, obviously, any rookie is intimidated, usually, like, like the first half of the season. Like, it's, it's very intimidating. You know, you're facing kind of a new team for the first time. You know, you're, you're making your rounds around the league. And, you know, it, it can be really intimidating, especially if you have a role like mine. And, you know, and, and you know you're, you're a little bit of a target. So I remember, I remember the, the Sarnia Sting Arena is, is a very nice arena, and, and they, get, they get a really good attendance there. So there's always a lot of people that are there even in the start of warm-up. So I remember I was wearing number 20 for Sarnia, and 
you know, I'm, I'm doing my thing in warm up. I'm wheeling around and, you know, OHL is still a new thing for me. I'm still getting used to the bigger crowds, you know, so I have all this stuff on my mind and, you know, I'm just trying to get warmed up. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing, Hey, 20, you fucking big fuck. I'm going to fucking kill you tonight. You filled, you're this sucker. You're that sucker. You're, you're, you're just a big punk. You punk. And then I remember looking, I'm like, who is this? Who are you? Like, where, where is this coming from? I haven't even played against these guys yet. You know what I mean? And I have this guy going nuts. And, and then I remember going into the corner, you know, during warm up. you know, we were doing whatever the, you know, the drill we were coming out of the corner and just make the pass around. And I remember thinking, I remember, you know, who, who is that guy? And then, and then one of the veterans were like, oh man, that's Avery, man. Just, just try to ignore him, man. He, he's the biggest agitator in this league, man. Just don't worry about him. You know what I mean? But, but I was just amazed that somebody would have that much energy and in warm-up, and for no reason. Like, there, were, there was no beef. There was no rivalry between the teams. Like, they, they, he, he was on... I, I mean, I believe he was playing... I, I believe he was playing for Kingston at the time. You know what I mean? So they're in one conference, we're in the other. So, like, I, I just couldn't figure out where this energy or, or where this motivation was coming from for this chirping and warm-up. And I knew at that point that this guy... Was 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 a different type of player, and was definitely going to be going somewhere. You know what I mean? Just because of the of of the personality and the character. You know, like a lot of guys hate the guy, but I mean, at times in his career, he was incredibly effective at what he did. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, you can't take anything away from the guy. Like, like the way I look at it is, if if people really dislike a player, he's really doing his job very well. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yep. When the players aren't noticed, that you know that's when they're just being mediocre. But but Avery, for what for what his role was, he was very extremely good at what he did. And I know there are some things that guys do that are stupid and this and that. And like you know that's a debate for for, for another time. But I knew that that he was going to be special. And and like I didn't know that he was going to have you know the career they did in the NHL that he did, but. I knew the man was going to do something because it was just very unique for someone to be able to get that fired up over nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah it, it was, it was pretty cool. And like in the OHL, that's kind of the only really story I have about Sean Avery, because uh, again, like, like I think that was the only year that, that we both played in the OHL. I think he moved on the pro after that year. He did. Yeah. And, um, yep. And so, so yeah, I just I just remember that clearly though. I just remember being you know five, ten, fifteen games into my OHL career. <laughs> I'm at home in warm up, and you think everything's going to be comfortable in warm up, and then all of a sudden, you know, you got this guy just screaming his head off, and and obviously Avery, he must have looked at the stats and seen that you know that I had kind of you know like you know I was probably like one or two in penalty minutes on my team, and you know like that then that's his job is you know to try to go guys into penalties. And stuff like that, right? So to get a guy going and warm up, I mean, that's one way to, to get things warmed up um, for what you want to do during the game. Absolutely. Well, and like you said, that was uh, your your draft. So going into the summer, there you draft your um, taken by the Buffalo Sabers uh, in the yeah. eighth, in the eighth round. That had to be a big thrill. Um, explain that. What was that like getting that phone call? Well, I mean, I mean, it, it, it was it was amazing. It was it was a dream come true. 
Um, my agent at the time uh, was Mike Gillis, uh, the same the same Mike Gillis that was GM of the Vancouver Canucks a few years back. And, um, you know, he had a career in the NHL, played for Boston for a while and whatnot. And um, anyway, so his rule for his players was you had to be rated in the first three rounds to actually attend your draft. And the reason why he did that was in the past he had players that were rated you know, seventh, eighth, ninth round, like myself, they would go to a draft. Like, for example, my draft was in Calgary. Okay, so you can imagine, you know, me flying to Calgary with my mom and maybe, like, my one of my brothers and maybe my girlfriend or something and, you know, probably a couple other people and we're all in Calgary and we're sitting there and, you know, and my name doesn't get called. You know, that could ruin, that could ruin my confidence and, and, and for the rest of my career. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and Gillis saw that with some of his players, you know, early in the earlier years that he was an agent. So so he made the rule, you know, most mo- most drafts around that time were like eight, nine, ten rounds, and he pretty much made a rule that you know you got to be rated in the top three rounds if you're going to attend the draft. If not, you can stay home, have a barbecue with your family, stay by the phone, have the internet up, and and be ready for the call. So that's what I did. I was at home. Um, we had a barbecue. Um, you know, my stepdad had the had the had the internet on. You know, it, it was a little bit behind, so that's where the nervousness came in. Because once it got to like the seventh round on the internet, because obviously the first day is the first three rounds, and then the second day is the rest of the draft. So on the second day of the draft, um, you know, like we're what we're following the internet, and once it got to like the seventh round, and like. I knew that it was a little bit, a little bit behind. So I, I was thinking, you know, I haven't got a call yet. You know, the draft could be over now. It's saying it's at the seventh round, but it could be done because it was only nine rounds the year that I went in the eighth round. And then so it was a little bit nerve-wracking. But of course, you know, about a half an hour later, the phone rang, and it was Don Luce, who's the director, who was the director of player personnel for the Sabers. And he called and said, Sean, congratulations. This is Don Luce um, from the Buffalo Sabres. And I'm going to pass the phone to Darcy Regeer, who's our general manager, and he's going to talk to you. So I said, okay, sir. We passed the phone over to Darcy. Darcy said, Sean, I want to welcome you to the organization. We've just taken you in the eighth round. We're going to send you all the paperwork and everything for training camp, and we're going to have a conditioning camp for our draft picks in a couple weeks. I'm looking forward to meeting you then. So I just said, thank you, sir. Hung up the phone. And then the celebration began. And even though I was a late pick, I mean, getting drafted to the NHL is getting drafted to the NHL. Oh, absolutely. I yep. remember doing a post. There was this thing that I saw on the Internet the other day. Um, it was actually probably a few weeks ago. And it was, it was, uh, it was the, the percentages of the odds of making the NHL. And so what they did was they took numbers from the amount of minor hockey players that play in Canada, and they were doing the odds of those players. And, you know, even getting drafted to the OHL is like a zero-point-something chance for a guy that starts in, in minor hockey in Canada. Yep. Getting drafted to the NHL is even thinner, and then actually playing in the NHL is even thinner uh, of a percentage. So, like, you know... Getting drafted was a really big deal. Um, you know, me, me and my two brothers all played AAA growing up. 
my mom took a lot of time and, and effort and money and blood, sweat and tears to like have us all be able to have that chance to play. And, you know, so it wasn't just for me. Um, it was for the whole family type of thing. Like it was just like, uh, it was, it was just recognizing, you know, all the hard work and time that everyone had put into it. Like, you know, my, my uncles contributed, my aunts contributed, my grandparents, like, like everyone helped out. Right. Because my mom, it was a single parent family for about six years before my mom got remarried. And at, at that time, you know, you got three boys in triple a and, and a, and a daughter that plays ringette, you know, it's, it's a really busy schedule, oh, yeah. you know? So, so it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a pat on the back. Even if, if nothing had happened after the draft and I, even if I had blown my knee out a week later, it was just the recognition that, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that, that we were in the, the, the small percentage of people that were able to make that next step. And, and I, I, I give a tribute to, to fully to my mom for that, for that, uh, for that milestone for sure. No, absolutely. Well, uh, the uh, well, the following year is a little bit of a crazy one in the Ontario League. You kind of Mississauga, then Kingston, then London. The yeah. One, the one thing I wanted to ask you about Mississauga, I mean, that was a shit show that year. Well, for a few years in yeah. Mississauga, but uh, yeah. of course, that was Don Cherry's team. Now was yes, it was 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 Don around? Have do you have any interactions with him? Yeah. So now, 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 I know Don pretty well now. Obviously, I met him at that time. Now, Don. Like the guy's a celebrity, right? So, like, pretty much how it would work is, I mean, he owned the team. He had a nephew named Steve Cherry that was an assistant coach. Um, he had a couple other family members that had different roles on the team. But we would probably see him maybe once, twice a week. He'd probably come to, like, one of the home games, and he would be up in a suite. You know, he'd have a crowd of people around his suite trying to get autographs and stuff like that. And so he kind of limited his availability just because, you know, even at that time he was getting older, even though that was so long ago, that, that just goes to prove how old he is now. Yep. But, um, you know, so he kind of made his availability a little bit limited. Um, he was just an owner. It's not like he was like part of the coaching staff or anything like that. So we probably saw him, I would say an average of once or twice a week. He might've stopped in for a practice. And then of course he'd probably, he have a suite. He'd, he'd show up to like, uh, one of the games, um, uh, uh, one of the home games every week. So the situation with that is they, they, um, I, when I got to the ice dogs, I believe that was the third or fourth year that they'd been in the league. The first couple years, you know, the team, the teams were obviously terrible. What they tried to do was they tried to like, they wanted to have the toughest team, but they also tried to like improve, like obviously the scoring and all that type of stuff too. But it was just an absolute disaster, and it wasn't any one particular person's fault. Rick Vive was the, was my coach that year, the the the, the legendary Leaf, yep. with the with the with the neck guard. Um, so Rick Vive was the coach. He's not one of my favorite coaches of all time. But looking back now, it probably wasn't his fault because the guy had good, he had good systems. You know, I think it was just, it was just a bad team that was, was, was what everyone was hoping would do well and it just didn't do well. And that happens sometimes. So also that was the year that Spezza was there, right? Nope, nope. That was Spezza's draft year. 
And that was the year that he got traded to Windsor for those five players. Okay. So now he, Spezza was trying to go first overall. He couldn't be on a last place team. It was either him or Kovalchuk. Right. And so he ended up getting traded to Windsor um, for five players um, because of the five players coming for one, obviously they had to make a bunch of changes. So now I always, when people always ask me, man, how did you play for six teams in the OHL? I said, it's very simple. The Mississauga Ice Dogs. The Mississauga Ice Dogs knew that I was one of the tougher players in the league the summer after my first year. So they, they, they made the trade for me. So now I'm, I'm on Mississauga. Now, because it was such a disaster, and because of the Spezza trade, they moved almost three quarters of the team that year. Everybody got traded that year. So apparently, what the Hunters told me, because that was the year that Dale and Mark bought the London Knights, Dale and Mark were trying to get me from the beginning of the season, but Mississauga was being kind of really stingy with the trades because they were trying to get as much as they could for the players because the team was doing so badly, right? So instead of Mississauga trading me to London, the team that really wanted me there, what they did was they traded me to Kingston because Larry Mavity, who also was looking for, for some more toughness, I guess he offered a little bit better than London did. So I got traded to Kingston, right? Played with Brett Cloutier and the boys, Doug yeah. McIver, Brett Cloutier. But I was only in Kingston for, I think, I think I played seven games. I was there for about three weeks. And then the Hunters got me from Kingston. So just the, the experience of being involved with the Ice Dogs and all that kind of, you know, like you were saying, just a shit show that year. I played for three teams in less than half a season because of Mississauga. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was in Kingston for three weeks. I shouldn't have been there. I'm glad that I got a chance to meet all those guys, guys like Michael Zygamanis and, you know, Cloutier. And, you know, th th there was a few guys. I I'm, I'm forgetting names now because I'm on the spot. But, you know, I'm glad that I was there. But I really shouldn't have been. I really, if I, I you know, I, I, I'm glad that I got to meet the guys in Mississauga too, guys like Brian McGratton, Chad Wiseman, you know, and, 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 you know, like I'm still friends with, with Gratz to, to this day, but, um, you know, we met in Mississauga and, and I'm glad that I got the chance to be a part of all that, even though it wasn't a good team, but that was really the reason why I played for so many teams because three out of that six teams was just because I was involved in Mississauga Ice Ducks. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so really the way I look at it is I played for London Knights for a year and a half. I only played in the OHL for three seasons. So the year and a half that I was with London, you know, and, and the fact that I finished so strong with Oshawa because I started getting ice time and started scoring and stuff like that, the way I look at it is even though, even though I had a good experience in Kitchener, I really just look at it that I was Sarnia, London, and Oshawa. Because the other teams, I was there for a very short amount of time, and it was really... With, with Kitchener and with Kingston and Mississauga, like there was just kind of the ice dogs um, shit show that made me kind of bounce around so much in that one season, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the London Knights is where I have the most memories. Um, you know, I was there for, for a season and a half out of the three years. And, and yeah, so, I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I always try to look at the good of every situation, right? Absolutely. So, 
Well, there yeah, you go. Sure. Like, well, Oshawa, you talk about a tough team. I mean, you and Ben Eager and McGratton again, and it's like, yeah, yeah, man, I wouldn't mind having those game tapes. That would have been something to see. But uh, a couple of your opponents from back then, I mean, some notable names. Well, one is uh, Cam Jansen. Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, Cam, 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 I'm, I'm, again, another guy I'm friends to, to to this day. Cam Jansen's is probably, I would say, he's he's probably has one of the best personalities that I, I, I've ever ran into. Um, probably one of the better team guys, even though I've never played with him, but I've played with a bunch of guys that have. Okay, and Cam was ahead of his time. Um, the guy was an American kid that came up to the OHL. I believe he's from the St. Louis area. Yep. And Cam came up. He was known as the toughest guy in his age group. We had a guy on London that was a rookie when I was in London. Um, his name was Chris Bain, and he was he was an Indigenous player. Um, he um, very 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 tough guy. And him and Jansen's, they had their battles as rookies, but me and Jansen's, we had our battles. So, so Cam Jansen's, he, he was a little bit ahead of his time. And, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, one specific video that I'm referring to that's on YouTube is it was actually, um, it was actually, it was a game that Cam Jansen scored a Gordie Howe hat trick. And I don't know if you've seen this YouTube video. But he scores the Gordie Howe hat trick. It's against it's against me. It's against my team, and he's being interviewed by the Windsor News. Oh, yeah, that's and, my that's my video. <laughs> well, that's your interview. That's my that's my video. I put it up on YouTube. Oh wow! Okay, well there you go, man. There you go. So you know exactly what I'm talking <laughs> I about. I do. Man. That's yeah. your work. Okay, so what my point is though is that Cam's a rookie at that age. So the man's like 17 years old. He's interviewing like he's 30 years old. He's, he's entertaining the, 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 the reporters. He's joking around. And at the same time, he's acting like he's a guy in the NHL that's been doing this every day since, since for, for 10 years. You know what I mean? So, yep. so Cam was ahead of his time with his personality and, and, and his aggression and, and everything. And, and, and so like I really admired him. I hated playing against them because I was like, man, this kid, man, He's so tough that, you know, I, I, at that time, like when, when Cam came into the league, that was my last year. And, you know, at that time, he was, he, he was a rookie, and I was expected to win every fight because I so-called, so-called had the belt at that time. But so if I lost to this guy, it'd be a big problem for me, right? Yep. So it was, it was fear of failure at that point. And, and I was just scared to lose against this guy. I took I took him on every single time because you know I, you know I was, I was playing you know for teams that I had to do that but but um but yeah I mean he he was he was definitely the toughest opponent as far as me being worried if I was going to lose the fight or not you know what I mean because I knew he would never stop he was a marathon fighter you know I wouldn't consider myself that at all so I knew that if it went long that he had the advantage obviously I had a major size advantage. But again, when you're tough enough, the size doesn't matter, right? Yep. And Cam was one of those guys. So he's, um, yeah. I mean, I remember I played against him in the AHL. Never got a chance to play against him in the show. We both went over to the UK to play at different times, and and now you know he's actually doing something that that I hope to start soon. Um, you know, doing the broadcasting and doing the radio and whatnot. 
And, uh, yeah, I got a lot of respect for Cam. You know, we're friends through social media. And, you know, I knew that, and I know that if we were ever in the same city, that we'd probably hook up for a beer. So, you know, shout out to, to Cam Jansen for sure. Yeah, well, right on. No, he, uh, we follow each other on Twitter and I've talked to him quite a bit. And, uh, yeah, no, he's great like guy. Really good. Yeah, great yeah, guy, Cam. Sure. A guy I wanted to ask you about, and this is for OHL fans. I mean, being out West, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't see any of that stuff, but I, I learned, you know, through fake message boards and trading deep fight tapes and everything about this guy. Um, and I know you had a, a few battles with him. Was the, uh, and this is for the old OHL old timers out there. They'll dig this. But, uh, do you have any stories about the late Jake Gilmore? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do. And, you, you know, you know, God bless his soul as well. You know, Jake, um, you know, like it, 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 it's, it's unfortunate, you know, what happened, but you know, like, um, you know, there's, there's things in life that don't make sense. And like, you know, obviously that's one of them, right? Yeah. Stuff that happens like that. But, but anyway, um, Jake, I think that Jake, I think that Jake was the, was, was the, one of the toughest kids in his age group. Um, he was a guy that enjoyed the fighting. You know what I mean? Like he actually enjoyed it. He enjoyed the battle. Yeah. And I didn't really get to that point until later in my career where I actually enjoyed the battle. And, and what I mean by that is the build up, the actual fight and, and the aftermath, you know, he enjoyed all that. He looked for it. And I remember um, when I played for the Oshawa Generals, um, well, the first time I, I matched up with them, I was playing in London. But then when I got traded to Oshawa halfway through my last year, you know, we went into Belleville. And at that point, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the fight's on YouTube. At that point, it was towards the end of my OHL career. You know, I had, again, I had the so-called belt, you know, I, like, like I had that title. And, you know, as a 19 year old, you know, I, like, like, like I should have, if I was that involved in that part of the game or whatever at that age. And, um, you know, Jake challenged me in warm up. You know, I kind of laughed it off a little bit, called him, you know, a rookie, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, that's just kind of the, the banter back and forth. And, you know, when the game got going, I knew that I had to do it because the kid wasn't going to back off. And, you know, we did a buckets off center ice fight. And, like, that wasn't common, you know, in junior to do stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, like, like we, we went buckets off center ice. And, and I'm telling you, man, I felt every single one of those punches ever in that fight. <laughs> I believe it's on YouTube right now. Yep. I felt every single one. And, and the reason why I remember it clearly is because I had – my birthday's on January 19th, and I remember, um, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure when the date was of that fight, but I remember I had a birthday celebration, and I remember just having these goose eggs on my forehead, and I knew that it was from Mr. Gilmore, <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and I just, and I don't remember a guy that, that made such an impact with his shots than Jake Gilmore, you know? Like Cam was like one of those guys that could was lightning quick with the fights with his right hands, lightning quick, could take a lot, had a really good chin. But Gilmore, man, it seemed like like he every one of his punches was like three punches in one. Like the man was just a strong, tough kid, man. Yeah. And you know, wasn't that big of a guy. I, I think he had pretty good weight on him, but he wasn't a tall guy. He was just a tough, just a tough kid, man. And, you know, I'm not really sure how he did 
you know, the, the, the following year after that. But I'm telling you, that, that one season, he really made a mark in the league because, you know, he sure made a mark on me on my forehead. I can tell you that. <laughs> so I, I, I had a lot of respect for him. And, you know, like, like I, like I, you know, like I, you know, prayers out to him, to, to his family and stuff. And, you know, like, unfortunately, you know, things happen that we don't understand. Right. And, and that's just the way life is sometimes. But. I mean, I mean, the guy was the guy was super, super tough guy, Jake Gilmore. Yeah, he was. No, and uh, no, that's cool, man. I want, I wanted, like, like you said, unfortunately, as the as the sands of time go, and uh, in terms of the tough guys, I mean, um, you know, his, you know, his name doesn't get brought up very much, and I want, I want to bring it up and get you to talk. Yeah, about Yeah, no, him. for sure. I mean, no, that, I mean, he, that was awesome. With how tough Jake was, I mean, his name should always be brought up. So I'm, 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 I'm glad that you do that. Because I'm telling you right now, man, I, I was I was there at that time, you know, and 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 I and I received the punches from Jake, and I could tell you they were harder than anyone else's in the league at that time. There you go. Um, well, another name you you brought him up a couple times, being friends with him and teammates and stuff, and I mean later on you fought him, but um, uh, at that time, did you see uh, with Brian McGratton? I mean. You know the name McGrath, and you talk, bring it up with fight fans or whatever. I mean, you know, there's talk about him. You know, he's up in the and some guys when they talk about the you know whatever the top ten best ever, or whatever his name certainly gets thrown around. And yeah, uh, and a and a, actually a fun little thing. I I I think you've no. I don't know if we you and I talked about it before on Twitter or not, but I do the the Bob Probert Invitational, the Twitter tournament when you can vote on on who's who, and and he won yep. the first and he won the first one. So there you know where the yep. fans' heads are at in terms of uh, toughness. Yep. When you were as kids there, you're a junior with Brian McGrath. When you were looking at him, did you envision an NHL heavyweight for three hundred and some games or however many he played? No. No, 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 no. Here's the thing with Gratz, and, and people are going to find this pretty interesting. Now, Brian McGratton is an incredible hockey player. Yes, the guy is. has been a skilled hockey player since he was a young kid, okay? The fact that he was six foot five, he had to play a certain role. But I'm telling you right now, when I played for the Mississauga Ice Dogs with Brian McGratton, he wasn't even one of the tougher guys on our team, okay? As hard as that is to believe. But because he had the toughness in him, because he was such a good player, and because when he came into the NHL, that was kind of the turning curve of where you didn't really have guys that just sat on the bench and got the tap anymore. It was the guys that had to kind of play a little bit more, like the Eric Boltons and, you know, the Steve Webbs and the Brian McGrattons and guys like that. And, Gratz was such a good skater. I mean, if you watch video of Brian skating, I mean, if you if you if you put a you know you know like a like a black mark over the last name, you know it could be any player out there when he's wheeling around because the man is a very skilled hockey player. Okay, now he's only one year older than me, so when he got into the Binghamton system. And, and he was playing, like, in the Ottawa system. I mean, he was in Binghamton, and I was in Rochester. He played for Binghamton when Ray Emery and the boys were all there, and it was the lockout year in 2004-2005. Now, that year, Brian McGratton broke a couple records. He broke a record, I believe, for penalty minutes in a season in the AHL. Yes, he did. I think he cracked the 500 and something minutes yeah. and all that. And to be honest with you, he did it against me. We were in Rochester, 
he told me that he needed this one to break the record. And could we do it? And I said, Gratz, it'd be my honor, buddy, to do it. And the thing about me and McGratton is the fact that we're friends. This is the difference between fighting a guy that's your friend and fighting a guy that, that you might not like that much and whatever. The difference is with fighting up guys think it's so weird to be fighting guys that are your friends off the ice. But as tough guys, we would probably actually prefer to fight a guy that we're friends with off the ice. And the reason being is because we know that we're not going to get hit when we go down. We know that if our shoulder pops out or something and we're hurt, that the guy's going to stop. We know that we're going to get that extra respect that we might not get against a guy that we've never met before off the ice that, that might, might not like us that much. You know what I mean? Yep. So, like, for, as weird as it sounds, I mean, I would rather fight Brian McGratton than a guy that I don't like that much because I know that if, if Gratz puts me down, he's not going to crank me when I'm, when I'm vulnerable and I'm on one knee. He's not going to, like I said, if I pull something or something and I say, hey, man, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, we got to stop this, he's going to stop. You know what I mean? He's not going to keep going and, and you know, just, just for the extra cheer from the crowd. You know what I mean? So it sounds weird, but I'm sure other tough guys can agree with me. We would rather fight guys that we know because we know that there's not going to be any cheap shots and that all the codes are going to be honored. So I think it's great. I think it's great. You know, obviously things are different now and, you know, like it, it's it, it's kind of interesting because, you know, if you look at history in hockey, the reason why they did all this grandfathering out stuff is, in my opinion, it was mostly because American audiences didn't find that there was enough scoring and they thought that it was kind of boring watching a 2-1 hockey game. So they figured if they kind of grandfathered the slower, bigger guys out and brought the smaller, faster players in, that it might make the game a little bit more exciting. But I'll tell you what the facts are. If you go and look at the, the numbers in the 1980s and early 90s, those were the times in the NHL that had the highest fights per game. And it just so happens to be that they also were the highest scoring in history. If you look at, if you look at those stats, if you look, like, you could go on sites like dropyourgloves.com and hockeyfights.com and the, the, it'll show you, like, league per league, you know, the, like the average fights per game. If you go back to the late 80s and early 90s, and maybe all of the 80s, like when the Oilers were winning the Cups and you had Cement Head Semeco and, and, you know, Marty McSorley, and you got all these famous names, you know, when Probert first got into the league, like all that type of stuff, the NHL was at their highest scoring point and their highest fighting point at the same time. So it's very interesting now that the scoring is so low and there's no fighting. Well, it looks like that that little um, you know little pass that they made was the wrong one. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, the scoring is lower than ever. I think. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the last couple of years it's maybe gone up a little bit. But the facts are, is it's nothing compared to the '80s, and and the fighting is 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 not even in the same planet as the '80s. So, I mean that. I mean, if they if they tried to reverse things around a little bit, and they and they kind of eased off all these rules, and you know, if they tried maybe taking the instigator rule out, but had some different rules around it, and the fighting increased a little bit, 
I guarantee you that the scoring would go up too. Why wouldn't it? That's how it was in the 80s and 90s. You know what I mean? Crowds, so crowds. it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, don't double quote me on all this stuff, but I'm almost positive that the highest scoring and fighting was at the same time and it was at the 80s. Because I looked into it a couple times, and, 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 and that's the results that I found. Oh, uh, no, I think you're right. And it, uh, it always it always amuses me. And I just shake my head when you have the media that's talking about getting, you know, nobody wants the fighting and getting rid of fighting. It's like, oh, you more like, oh, the game won't grow because it's violent. I'm like, what are you talking about? Violent sells. I mean, that's not yeah. politically correct. And I mean, I know people don't, but it's true. And the old saying back in the day was red eye sells. It does. I don't know. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I like, 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 uh, UFC MMA is the fastest growing sport right now. Okay, yep. so just saying that alone, I mean, we don't have to get into any more details. I mean, we know like, like, like the violence level in that sport, and you know, people, if if you have two willing combatants, there's really nothing better. Like all of history, when you go back to the ancient times and the gladiator times. And all, and you know, up to now, with with you know, with, with Conor McGregor, you know, like there's nothing more exciting than two willing combatants going to battle. Absolutely, they're two tough guys. They're rarely getting hurt, and they're doing it for their city, team, and fans. You know what I mean? And 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 I don't think there's anything that's more pure and beautiful than something like that. So, I mean, I'm not really sure how the game's going to go. But, I mean, I think it kind of has a little bit to do with society as well and the, and the culture of our society. Yep. You know, if you if you go back to the 70s and 80s, you know, parents could smack around their kids. No one questioned it. A parent does that now. CIS is being called, and, and the guy might spend a night in jail. You know what I mean? Yep. So our society has changed, you know, and I think it's gone along with the sports. But at the same time, I mean, it contradicts that whole statement when we talk about the popularity of the UFC. So it it it's very frustrating in some in some regards. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, um, well, there there there's. The, I know we're getting off topic. Well, I was gonna so say, well, there, no, we're, hey, this is great. But uh, well, there's the we wrapped up junior. So now you turn pro and you play four years in Rochester. But before yeah. we get, we you know, we'll kind of just, uh, we're going to glaze over that, obviously. But in 2000, yeah. 2003, you're a rookie, Rochester, and this is a big year for you. But, of course, going into camp, into the Buffalo Sabres camp that year, um, you know, it was you and Peters and Bolton and everybody. You guys are all at camp fighting for jobs. Um, was there any promises made to you at that point, or was it just... Uh, you know, did you know you were heading to Rochester, or did they? You know, what was the uh, what was the feeling going into that camp that year? Well, yeah, well, well, I mean, I mean, the feeling going into that camp is, I mean, I mean, when you're when you're going into your first training camp under contract, so there's a big difference between you know going to camp just as a draft pick and then going back to junior and then actually being signed and knowing that you know you have a chance to actually make this team yep. or go to the AHL or go to the East Coast. So. I mean, I was I was lucky enough to be able to play a couple preseason games that year. Um, there, there was that was actually the year that that uh, that preseason um, I played against Ottawa 
had the battle against Chris Neal, and, and the man actually broke his leg in that fight. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that got me a little bit of attention because obviously obviously Chris Neal wasn't very well liked like in, in for, uh, like with Buffalo fans and, and with the Buffalo brass and the Buffalo players. So, I mean, you never want to hurt anybody, but, you know, the fact that that happened and, you know, I was a rookie, you know, people gave me a lot of credit for that because it stood out, obviously, you know, or, or whatever. So I had one game where I actually had two fights. I was able to fight Shane Knighty and Chris Neal in the same game. Um, Rob Ray was still a part of the team at, that year. And, you know, me and Andrew ended up starting the year in Rochester, Andrew Peters, and then it was Eric Bolton and Rob Ray uh, with the big club. So um, my expectations was, I mean, anybody coming in that just signed an NHL contract, everybody thinks that they're going to make it. If you don't think you're going to make it, there's no point of you being there because your confidence level is not high enough to even give yourself a chance. So you have to think that you're good enough to make it. You have to think that you're going to make it even to have a chance to be there. So with me getting to play a couple preseason games, you know, and, you know, I, I thought that I did well. I thought that, you know, that I played well enough and fought well enough to get, have a shot to make the team. Obviously I was, I was happy with going to Rochester because going to the AHL is a huge step from junior as well. Okay. So when me and Andrew started in Rochester, um, you know, the one thing that I, that I kind of want to bring up is, is the fact that, you know, I, I idolized Rob Ray as a kid. You know, the guy went to battle against all the Toronto tough guys, me growing up in Toronto and, you know, Buffalo being a divisional team and whatnot. You know, you get to see the divisional tough guys a lot as well, and, you know, and the rivalries start and, and this and that. Now, Rob Ray is the ultimate community guy. He, I, I don't know, like, the awards and stuff like that that he won over his career, but I know that he was one of the guys that did all the charitable and promotional events for the Buffalo Sabres. When I was a rookie in before that season had even started, um, like I mentioned before, with all the draft picks, they do conditioning camps with the Sabre draft picks to try to develop the players. So we were staying in, a, in an apartment that was close to the Marriott, which is the main hotel for where the Sabres usually stay for the guys that are getting called up and stuff like that. They'll stay at the Marriott Hotel in Amherst. So... There was one night where a bunch of us, a bunch of the draft picks, we had, we had made ourselves over to the Marriott Hotel. And to be honest with you, it's because they had a really cool bar in that hotel where there was a lot of good-looking girls that would, that would <laughs> frequent that, that, that bar. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're young guys, and, you know, we're, we head over there. We had a day off the next day, and we head over there. But there was, there was this convention thingy where they were doing this award thing, like an award ceremony for Rob Ray. And they were recognizing him for all the community work that he did in Buffalo the previous season. So I remember kind of like, like looking into this convention room and, and seeing like the honors that they were giving Rob Ray and how everyone like appreciated him so much. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself and I'm like, you know, what did this guy really do to be appreciated this much and, and for people to be so happy with him? And I'm, and I'm finding out that he's doing these, these public appearances and this charitable stuff. And, and I'm thinking to myself and I'm like, you know what? Like, like that's the way I want to be. Like, I want to be involved with that kind of stuff. I want, I, I want to make a difference in people's lives. If it's, if it just means showing up to events because I'm part of this team that, that people admire so much and, you know, just giving a little bit of extra time 
and people appreciate it so much. Like, why would you not want to be involved with something like that? So because of Rob Ray, he changed the whole angle of my career because every single team that I was on, I was that guy. I was the guy that did all the charitable and promotional events. I was the guy that showed up at the hospitals and the schools and did all the public appearances. And as a result, I was able to gain so many skills, like public speaking, like being comfortable in front of the camera. Like, like there's so many things that you gain when you do volunteer work that you don't even realize how much you're, how much of that asset assets that you're gaining just by volunteering your time, just because of the experience. And, and, and I, I give full credit to Rob Ray because I looked up to the man. The man was a great role model and I tried to follow in his footsteps and I think I did a pretty good job. You know, I was three time AHL man of the year for community service. That's given to the player that, that has the biggest impact in his community. So they have a guy for each team. And then what they do is they have one guy for the league. And, you know, it, it's just, it, it just depends on how big of a pitch the front office does for that player, usually for if that player is going to win the league one. But I won that my team won three times um, in the AHL. And I'm not trying to point out all the awards that I won, but, but I just want people to understand that, that my career off the ice like, like with, with the off-ice events and the schools and the hospitals and the public appearances, that was just as important to me as the stuff on the ice. And as a result, I was able to develop skills that I'm now using in my mid to late 30s and that I'm going to be using for the next 25 years for careers that I have, hopefully in sports broadcasting and similar ventures. The marketing job that I have right now I gained all those skills from all that stuff that I did off ice in the, in the AHL and then when I went overseas to the UK. So I attribute all that to Robert Ray. He was the man that showed me the way, and I, and I really appreciate how big of an impact he had in Buffalo because even being a Toronto kid, he had an impact on me too, being up to QEW. So I just wanted to point that out. I know it has nothing to do with the fighting and all that kind no, of no, stuff. No, no, that's great. No, that was actually me, one of my questions. To me, it's yeah. very, very important. And like, any young players, guys that have chances to make junior teams, you know, that get to play pro, guys, sign up for all that extracurricular stuff. It's not the coolest thing at the time in the dressing room. Guys are rolling their eyes and they just want to go home and they just want to go out to lunch and they don't want to have to put on the jersey and go to a school. But I'm telling you what, there's so much benefit from it down the road. And the people that you meet along the way, the networking, the skills that you learn, it's just worth it to do the extra work, guys. So anyone that's listening out there that has opportunities or that is comfortable in these kind of settings, take advantage of it. Do all the appearances and gain all the experiences and, and meet all the people that you're going to meet. And it's, it's never fun just being a regular hockey player, guys. You want to be, be extra. You want to do more stuff. You want to be a fan favorite. You want to be more than just a guy that shows up at the rink and then leaves as soon as practice is over or the game's over. So I, I just kind of wanted to throw that out there too. But No, that's, um, that's great. That, that first year in Rochester, um, so what I did was I would sign up for all the appearances. And then pretty much, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't getting that much ice time that year, you know, being a 20-year-old rookie in the AHL. So what I tried to do was I just tried to fight every single game. I ended up meeting the. I, I, you pretty I much did, actually. 
Yeah, I, almost. Yeah, like I like I think I had I like I think I had forty one or forty two fighting majors that year in the regular season. Um, I did lead the league that year in fights as a rookie, and as a result of me doing my role and sacrificing, I was rewarded. And Buffalo called me up for a regular season game that year, and you know, lucky luckily for me, it just so happened to be against the Toronto Maple Leafs Saturday night hockey night in Canada. I remember, and, you know, I remember the game because I was sitting in my couch watching it. Yep. Yeah, and like, and like, and so, so the thing with that game is the storyline behind that game was that Rob Ray and the Buffalo Sabers had played the Leafs. I think about three or four weeks previous to that game, there was an altercation in the game where there was a five-on-five scrum. Rob Ray pulled. Nikolai Ponikarovsky of the Toronto Maple Leafs out of the out of the scrum and absolutely pounded his head in. The Toronto Maple Leafs didn't like that because this was a small European guy on their team, right? Yep. So then a couple weeks later, Rob Ray gets traded to a team that, you know, is in contention, the Ottawa Centers. Rob Ray gets traded to the Ottawa Centers. The Buffalo Sabres only have Eric Bolton in the lineup for the NHL squad. They're not playing the Toronto Maple Leafs again. There's all this talk in the papers that the Leafs wanted payback on the Sabres, you know, for picking on their skilled guys in the, the last game that was in Buffalo. So it, it, it was it was it was good timing for me leading the AHL and fighting majors, even though Andrew was two years older than me and was a higher draft pick. You know, was making more money was a was a bigger investment for them. Um, I just had the better season that year, and because I was the younger, hungrier guy, they gave me that shot. Andrew never got called up that year. I only got called up the one game, but that that one game, you know, was what I was waiting for my entire life, right? As yep. what any Canadian. Kid, uh, you know, kid is waiting for their whole life, right? Hey, and that's, so, that, that's, what, that's what we all dreamed about, man. We all, exactly, we all wanted that. Exactly. That so, yeah. so, so, I, so I remember, and like, and like, I'll tell you, like, like um, the way that it's done when guys get called up from the AHL, there's different scenarios that, that it could be done. Most guys find out they get called up after practice because there'll be the morning practice. The coach will pull them aside, tell them that they got called up, you know, and then they'll, you know, they'll have their itinerary for, you know, if they're flying and meeting the team. In my case, I'm just, you know, an hour and 15 minutes down the 90, down the throughway, you know, from Buffalo. So I just drove to Buffalo after. But, but there's different scenarios. But so for me, what it was is it was we were at our, we were at our practice facility in Rochester at ESL Arena. Uh, Randy Cunnyworth was my head coach, who's um, – you know, uh, one of the greatest coaches I've ever had, and and he's also an idol of mine. And you know, I I, I didn't I didn't think that I was getting called up that day, but I it was getting towards like kind of the end of the year. You know, at, at this time, fighting was still a really important part of the game at that level. And you know, I was leading the league in fights. I'm a rookie. You know what I mean? So like, I'm I'm thinking like, you know, like, you know, am I gonna get my shot? I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I I'm hoping I will. I think I deserve to. But you know, we all think we deserve to in the AHL, right? We're all hungry. So practice finishes up, and it's not uncommon for the rookies to have to do extra work after practice, like extra little stick handling drills or you know quick feet drills, especially if you're a bigger guy like me. 
You know what I mean? So it wasn't uncommon for the coaches to pull you aside and maybe to, to work one-on-one with you for 10 or 15 minutes after practice. So Cunny calls me over, didn't think anything of it, went over there. Then he started acting a little bit weird. So then I was like, okay, so something's happening here. So I, I remember it clearly. And, and, and the words that he said was, he said, he said, he's like, 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 like my nickname is usually Mac or Macker with most of my teams. I mean, obviously I, I, I got that sheriff, you know, nickname as well, but, but Mac is usually like, like what my teammates like at that time called me because yep. the sheriff thing hadn't even started up yet. So, you know, he's like, Matt, come here. I got to talk to you for a second. So I'm like, oh, like, you know, I'm thinking I'm, am I in trouble? Am I going to have to do some quick feet drills? Like what's going on here? Right. So, so I, I wheel over and, you know, he, he kind of, you know, he's, he's leaning on his stick and he's looking me dead in the eye. And, uh, and he, and he's like, you know, I, I, I just want you to know that, that you got the call. You're going to the show. That's how he said it. You got awesome. the call. You're going to the show. I'll never forget the way he said it because the smirk on his face and the eye contact. And, you know, so, you know, it's a little bit overwhelming when that happens because it's before it's actually happening, but it's something that you've been waiting for your whole life and you have all of these mixed emotions. And so, you know, he said it to me and, and I remember like, you know, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm like, I'm like, fuck this. I'm getting off the ice right now. I, I got to call my mom. So, you know, so like, you know, the, where, our, where our clothes were hanging, we kind of had to pass that area where we changed all our clothes before we went into our dressing room. We had a nice practice facility in Rochester. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I got to my, to my jeans and pulled the cell phone out of my pocket. And I'm fully, I'm fully dressed in my equipment still, you know, just came off the ice. And, you know, and, 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 I, and I called my mom and, and she just happened to answer it, you know, right away. And, and, and I told her, I'm like, mom, I got, I got called up. And she's like, oh, my goodness, Sean, that's wonderful news. And, you know, who, who are you playing? And I said, I'm playing against Toronto. <laughs> and it's, it's this Saturday night. And so this was like on a Thursday. This was a Thursday after practice. And um, the game was Saturday night. So I had to report to Buffalo that evening to that, that same Marriott Hotel where I seen Rob Ray get the, uh, uh, the you know, get, get, um, get recognized for, for the community work. And, um, and yeah, so I, I mean, I was up, it was an emergency call up. I, I don't, I can't remember the person that was hurt that, that, that gave me the chance to get called up. But I mean, the spot was open because Rob Ray was traded, but I mean, there, there was an injury. So it was an emergency call up. I mean, I, I remember I was up for four days. I was, it was Thursday, Friday, the, the game day. And then Sunday was when I got sent back down. But I also got credit for that day. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because, as everybody knows, there's a big difference between NHL and AHL salaries. So how it works is it'll be prorated. So, for example, I was up for four days. So that pay period of two weeks was, you know, for the 14 days, I had four NHL days and I had 10 AHL days. And I'll tell you what, that pay period was was a very good pay period <laughs> because you know like it's it, it's prorated for I I don't know it's probably based on you know six or seven hundred thousand or whatever and you know my AHL salary was about fifty grand so you know it's it's a big difference even a couple days makes a big difference and you know I I think most of it because how it also works is when you get called up to the NHL but you're on the road you can get as many tickets as you want but you of course you got to pay for them. 
So everybody knows how expensive tickets are for the Toronto Maple Leaf games, and even back then they were still expensive. So they were 150 bucks a ticket. I had 25 people at the game. <laughs> um, I think that I think I think my my parents might have chipped in a little bit, but I paid for the majority of it. So any of the extra money kind of went towards the tickets that I made for the call up. But I didn't care. It's not about the money. It's about what we do our whole lives. It's about our culture. It's about the way that we've grown up. It's about us watching Saturday night, every Saturday night, Hockey Night in Canada, watching Don Cherry and Ron McLean, and just imagining if we might be able to be a part of that one day, the guys that play minor hockey and junior. And the fact that I was able to be a part of that, man, like, I'll, I'll never forget it. There's one more thing I want to mention about it. Um, that was the time, around the same time, that the U.S. invaded Iraq, okay? And that was around the time that it wasn't a very popular decision when the U.S. did that. Canada was not backing them at that time, for those that can remember that. Yep. So what had happened was that the weekend before I got called up, there was a game in Montreal where the Montreal fans really booed the U.S. national anthem like really bad. Like, like it was, it was pretty much the whole arena was booing the anthem and it made, it made headlines. There was a couple stories out of it. So the following weekend, I guess with all the news stories and CBC and all this type of stuff that, you know, it was, it was trying to be attempted for the Toronto fans to kind of make up for that and to try to be extra loud and cheering the U.S. anthem because they are our neighbors. And even though we weren't backing them in the war, they're still our neighbors. And, and it's just not good to be booing your neighbors, especially when they're a world power. So the arena was a little bit extra fired up for the anthems. And this just happened to be Sean McMorrow's first NHL game. And so it was extra loud for the anthem. And I just remember just, it was just such a great feeling, man. Like, 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 I, like, I, like, real tough guys know that real men cry. It's not. There's no shame to be crying. But I, I, I had, I shed a bunch of tears during that anthem, man, because just all, just all the emotions going through, the fact of what I was just about to do, the fact that it was a dream come true, the fact that it was extra, extra loud for the anthem, all that stuff put together, like the, the emotions definitely couldn't be held in. And like, if there's ever, I don't know, I've never, I've never seen one to this day, but if there was ever any pictures of me during that national anthem, you probably would think that I was upset by the tears that you'd see, but really it was tears of joy and happiness. And, um, but there was nothing happier than after the game coming out in my suit to my family waiting for me after the game. So that's, that's, that's from feet from the heart, just a Canadian kid getting called up like that, that. Those were the feelings that I had going through those moments that I'll never forget. That's awesome. No, that's great. And that was, uh, anybody want to March 22nd, 2003. That was the, that was the game. And, uh, no, that was awesome, man. But, um, yeah. yeah. So like you said, you had four, four seasons in Rochester. Um, and you were busy 40, 40 fights, 35 fights, another 40 fight season. Um, just to talk about some of the guys he, that you battled, and I mean the AHL at that, the AHL at that time was, uh, you know, every team was was stacked, a couple dudes deep, and uh, you know, every yep. night it wasn't hard to it wasn't hard to find someone. Um, 
I'm just going to throw a few names at you that you took on and, and just kind of get your feelings on them. Um, and okay. you got you to start at the top. I mean, the guy was a legend and uh, was Dennis Bonvie. Yeah, I was hoping you were going to bring him, him up. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Dennis Bonvie, um, another another guy that I idolized. Um, not not a big guy at all, but but very big-hearted. Um, he, um, he played for Binghamton when I was in Rochester. Um, he was one, he was probably the guy, he was probably the biggest name that I fought like early on in my AHL career. And I just remember the guy, like, I, I, I remember there was, there was these t-shirts saying, give blood, fight Bondi. <laughs> right? Like as if there was a blood donor clinic, give blood, fight Bondi. Right? So yeah. like, I remember seeing these, these t-shirts in up and you know, like it was quite the thing and you know, all the battles that I had with Dennis, like, like I remember them all. And he, he was a very respectful guy. Um, very, very entertaining man. Like he would have the, like the Notre Dame Irish fighting stance going and stuff like that. And, you know, like I remember there, I, there's one fight that I, that I've seen on YouTube where, the, where he's just not moving from his stance. And I don't know what to do, man. I'm, I'm a 20 year old that don't have as much experience as he does. He's got his fists up. He has the Notre Dame Irish fighting stance going, and he's just not moving. And he's and you know what I mean. So yep. that was an interesting one. I think I did well in that one, but I, I remember that one. He popped me in the nose pretty good, and I have the boxer's nose that comes right down. Like I've never really broken my nose, but he he probably came the closest to breaking my nose, man, because he really gave it to me hard in that one. So got a lot of respect for Dennis. I remember later in my career when I was in Rockford. He had just got a scouting job with Toronto, and I was a healthy scratch. And I was up in the I was up in the press box, and I remember seeing him, and him being like, "Hey, Mac, what's going on, buddy?" And like, and, and I just realized, you know, like the hockey world is a special world, and you know, especially guys like Dennis Bondi, you know, like the guy's a legend, but you know, he, he's he's, a, he's just a regular guy that that has a great heart and just tough as nails, man. And and, and I'll, I'll always remember the battles that I've had with him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Bonvi, he was something. Well, another guy in your rookie year, and he, he went on to play in the American League and over in Russia, and he's a big name in terms of uh, the minor leagues. And, and I, I, you know, I met him a few times when we were growing up, um, but because uh, he, he's a Saskatchewan boy. But uh, Jeremy Yablonski. Yablonski. Yeah, I mean, this guy, like, like I, I, I remember, I, like, and, I'm in, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Yablonski went from the coast to the AHL to the NHL in like two weeks one year. I, I believe that was the situation. Um, I remember my first year, um, he was in Cincinnati. He had got called up because he was in the coast, and me and Andrew Peters were kind of, you know, building a reputation as Bruce Brothers, you know, up in Rochester. We were going down to Cincinnati for, for a two-game little, little series for the weekend, uh, back-to-back home games for Cincinnati. And they called up Yablonski, and I'll tell you what, um, the first fight I had with him, I got, I got Yablo so good that he was on a mission to destroy me in the second one, or he was probably afraid that he was going to get sent down. And the man came out in the second period, came right after me. I don't think he was even wearing shoulder pads or elbow pads, but I'm one of those guys where I, I have a lot of tricks under my sleeve. Like, I got a reach. I can use the equipment to tie guys up. I jersey guys a lot. I can uppercut. I can use my left. I can use my right. 
I, there's a lot of things that I could do. I get criticized a lot for it, but I mean, there's haters everywhere, and I'm sure if I wasn't effective, they wouldn't be as mad, right? Yep. But what happened was, is I went for the jersey on Yablonski, and all his stuff came off. The man was completely naked up top from, from, his, from his hip-up, and he just tagged me a bunch and bunch a bunch and bunch of times. <laughs> and I'll never forget that battle. And again, you have to admit these things because no one wins them all, right? No, no. So no, no, nobody can win them all. And Yablonski really got me good in that second fight of that two-fight game. And, and that will always stick out to me. Um, but Yablonski is probably one of the strongest, yeah. strongest guys that have fought on ice in this world. Yeah. No, he's, <laughs> yeah. Like, he, he's, he's done that to a few people. Yeah, he was, he's, he's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He's a bad All dude. All his stuff came off. I had nothing to grab onto. Well, that's even worse. He just, yeah. he just went to work. <laughs> I got to give him full credit for that one. Uh, another name I wanted to bring up and, uh, much like the the Jake Gilmore, it's it's, it's a sad story, but uh, we yeah. won't, we won't get into that. But he was a big tough dude, and I know he was. I know I've a few. I've talked to a few people that played with him, and they were really fond of him. And he was a tough guy. Uh, was Trevor Ettinger? Oh man! So I'll tell you one thing about Trevor Ettinger. He was my main rival my first season. Yep. I believe he was second to me in majors that year. And the, I think the only reason why is because he just didn't play as many games as I did, right? Trevor Ettinger, I believe, was, was, the, was the toughest guy that I fought in the AHL. Trevor Ettinger had the size. He had, he had the endurance. He had the, he had the hand speed. The guy was like, he was so tough that like when, when – <laughs> When the games would start, because he was Syracuse and I was Rochester, and Syracuse and Rochester play each other like 12 times a year. It's like incredible. In, in the AHL, you don't really cross conferences that much. You play your same division over and over and over again. So when the teams are really close like that, it seems like they play each other even more. I'm not sure how if it's the same now, but that's the way it used to be. So we played each other 12 times, man. And I think we might have had like eight or nine fights. I know Trevor didn't play in all the games. We probably would have had probably 15 fights if we played each other 12 times. But, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, man. There's a bunch of those fights that are on YouTube, and I think he might have had the upper hand in probably three quarters of them because he was a really tough guy to fight. He was so big, so strong, had the endurance, had had the reach. He, he had it all, really, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. And, and he had the personality to go with it. And I know that everyone that played with him absolutely loved him. And, and, and again, you know, God bless his soul. Um, Trevor Ettinger, one of the toughest guys that I've fought in my life. And, and, and I'll always have, have, have respect for that guy. And, and, and I hope that there, there's a time that, 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 I, that I get to meet him again. You know what I mean? Like, like in another life or whatever it is. But, I mean, Trevor Ettinger, tough as nails, man. Crazy, crazy hair going wild when he fought and everything, and it's just I, 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 I'm. I, it's funny that you brought up his name now because I, I, I get excited just talking about the guy. Yeah, to be honest. Yeah, no, that's, that's how exciting a fighter that guy was. Yes, he was. Yeah, and that's great, man. I wanted to, like I said, I wanted to get his name out there. Um, oh yeah, for sure. Trevor Ettinger, as tough as they come. Absolutely. 
Well, another one. But well, before we uh, before we start, before we head to the Quebec League, uh, yeah. I got to ask you um, another guy you took on. Well, you, actually, I think you took him on in the Quebec League too. He ended up there, but uh, was old Sugar Brandon Sugden. Oh, yeah. How did those battles? Okay. He's a bad no. dude, man. He's a tough dude. Yeah, he's, he's, he is a bad dude. Now, 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 Sugden. Um, Sugden's four years older than me. I think he's a seventy-eight. I'm an eighty-two. Um, Sugden Sugar played in London. Um, Sugar Sugar was was my rival when he was in Syracuse and I was in Rochester. And the thing about Brandon is that the guy has lost so few fights in his career. Like if you go to any fight website, you know all of them are going to be a little bit different with the records and stuff because it's the fans that vote on the fights and this and that. And you know it just depends, you know, how many home fans are really you know, oh, voting yeah. on the fights and stuff like that. But it's usually pretty accurate. Like, it, it's more accurate than, than not accurate, right? Yep. But so, Sugden is a guy that has had such a good record in his career. The problem between me and him is that I did fairly well against him with our personal fights, like just the one-on-one fights, right? So, I think the thing with Sugden is he got a little bit frustrated with me because... I was really the only guy that had a decent record against them. That's how dominant he was. Okay. So now another thing with him is that he was such a good fighter, but he was mostly right hands and he would break his hand a lot. You know what I mean? Because he wasn't switching up as much as he probably should. But at the same time, he was so effective with the way he did it that that was probably just the best way that he could do it. But, but Brandon Sugden, probably, probably the best skilled fighter. And what I mean by that is just his technique, the way that he went into the fights, the way that the, his confidence level, he, he just like, when you were going in with him, if he wasn't smiling during the square off, it, it was an off night. The man was smiling at you, was a big guy. I think we're the exact same size, about 6'4", 225 when we were in our primes. And he just, he had the reach. He had a huge right hand. And he very, very rarely lost the fight, this man. Very, like, I I think he might, he might have, like, the best fight record out of anyone that has, like, over 100 fights in pro. It'd be interesting to look up. Brandon Sugden probably has the best win-loss record. And so with me and him, we had a little bit of a rivalry because he was in Syracuse, I was in Rochester. Then when we went to Quebec, um, the teams that we just happened to play for were kind of like the two top teams, and they had a big rivalry as well, right? So, so like I remember my first game in that league, we played um, uh, the Chiefs because that's what he played for. And we fought twice. I scored the game-winning goal. It was a great night for me. I think I think Suggs even got the better of me in both the fights. But like the fact that it was my first game, you know, I had the two fights and the goal, so it was a good game for me because in that league at that time, it was kind of like as long as you could like eliminate the guy that was up against you and you didn't like lose bad, you did a good job. Just yep. because everybody was so tough, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, you know, Brandon's from Toronto, and uh, he's a great guy. Um, I'm not really close friends with Brandon because we are four years apart, 
But, like, I am friends with guys that are close with them, and I know that he's a really good guy. And I'm telling you what, I like, he might be the guy that has the best win-loss record for anyone that has, like, a good number of fights in pro. Got a lot of respect for him, for sure. Absolutely. Well, so just uh, kind of just wrapping up the Rochester, one thing I did want to ask you, well, a couple things before, while I'm thinking about it. Um, the first one, of course, this is before, in your time from junior up to this point that we're at in the mid-2000s, there's no YouTube, there's no, you know, yeah. whatever. Did, how did you, did you, were you like, did you get into like videotapes or did you scout anybody in terms of video or was it just word of mouth and let's see what happens? At that time, it was all word of mouth and let's see what happens. I mean, guys that were in the NHL, they might have had like access to the video and all that type of stuff. But like, I know that in the AHL, you know, I think YouTube came out in like 2005 or 2006. Something like that. Um, yeah. yeah. So like, up to that point, there really wasn't too much, like, scouting that you could do. It, it was all pretty much word of mouth and, you know, talking to guys that, 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 that did it. Like, and, like, a prime example is when I got called up for that regular season game, my first year pro, you know, Eric Bolton was in the lineup. Me and Eric Bolton had the same agent at the time. His name's Mike Walcom, great guy from the Buffalo area. And he pretty much... Before the game, you know, he pulled me aside. He's like, okay, Mac, um, you know, Domi, you know, he likes to do the spin. You know, Belak, you know, he's going to hold you out and try to give you the jabs, and then he's going to come with his right. You know what I mean? So it was more like that. Like, you more had to kind of, like, coach. Like, if there, was, if there was two or three of you on the team, it'd be like a little fighters meeting before the game. Yep. And, like, you would kind of – you kind of give your opinions on, on what you thought guys were going to do and, 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 and what you thought the best strategy was. And, and, you know, that's one thing that Bolts did for me, Eric Bolton. That, that's one thing that he did for me was kind of give me a little scouting report kind of on, you know, you know, I, I know they had a couple big D men at that time too, but Belak and Domi were obviously the two main guys at that time for the Leafs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now here, here we go. And I had a bunch of, followers on Twitter when they I told a couple guys that I was talking to you while yep. this was the main now for all and it's uh and it's no disrespect anywhere else you've been you played in the NHL and the American League and everything else but I think it's the reputation of the LNAH the Quebec Senior Quebec Senior League Quebec League whatever people want to call it the LNAH yep. I think yep. the the you know the stories are out I've told a few stories on my podcast I've had guys that played in that league before the documentary of the Chiefs and everything else. You go from Rochester. You had the four years. You, they don't resign. Um, how did you end up in Saint Hyacinth? Okay, so I. And I, well, played, I, I so, so, sorry to cut you off, but one, how did you end up there? Two, did you know anything about it going in? And uh, yeah, okay, I'll let you go. Sorry to cut you off, but yeah. No, no, no problem, brother. So, okay, so, 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 so with the Buffalo Rochester thing, I was on a three year entry level contract. So I was on a three year deal. You know, I did, I did well in those three years. So they re signed me to a, to a one year contract for a fourth year. That was the year after the lockout year when, when everything kind of started fizzling down for the role players. And then obviously I didn't re sign. That's another hard thing for players to say when, you know, when teams don't offer them a contract, but it happens and, and, and that's just life. So yep. I wasn't offered a contract. So now from that, from that point on, 
where I was was the year after that. And like, it's not really in any like statistical thing because I actually never really got into the lineup, but I was with the Chicago Wolves in the AHL. Okay. So I was on the Chicago Wolves. I was being healthy, scratched every single game. The Chicago Wolves are kind of like the New York Yankees of the AHL. They have a very, very high payroll. They fly almost to every single place except for like the teams that are within an hour of them. And, you know, the owner of the Chicago Wolves is a guy that, that is a billionaire. And, you know, it's, a, it's an unlimited budget there. So they usually have like a bunch of extra players just because they can. I was one of those guys. They knew that I was a tough guy, like at the AHL level. So they were happy that I was there, but they just, they, no one was hurt and, and they had the full lineup. And like, I just wasn't making it into the lineup. So at that time, there was no rules in the LNAH about, about imports and all that kind of stuff. Like it was pretty much, you know, just, it was all open. You could sign whoever you wanted. You could sign people from freaking Russia. You could sign people from Belarus. It didn't matter where they were from. You could sign them from anywhere. So what they would have is they would have these guys for each team that were, that were like recruiters. So the guy that was the recruiter that got me there, he was a guy by the name of Carl Boucher, who's now a general manager in the LNEH. He's won many championships now. We're now friends, and he's a great guy. But at that time, he was a recruiter for a couple of teams. So what he would do was he would somehow he would find out our cell phone numbers, and he would just call us every single day with, 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 with the salary um, offer, with a signing bonus offer, with this and with that. And since that time, the LNH has really cleaned it up. Like they have a salary cap that's very similar to the East Coast Hockey League. And, you know, everybody's getting paid in check now. Everybody's paying their taxes. Where before it wasn't like that. It was all cash in envelopes, big signing bonuses. Anybody could come from any league. Like it was a free-for-all. Oh, yeah. So this guy was so so I remember Yuri Moshevsky was the first guy that kind of went from the AHL. He went from the Manitoba Moose at the time before the Jets came back there it was the Manitoba Moose. He played he played Manitoba Moose, he went to the Chiefs. So that was the first guy. Then Sugden went shortly after him. So now I'm seeing these guys going to this Quebec League. I have no idea what this is about. I know it's a tough guy league. I still have the same agent that that me and Eric Bolton had, the guy that's from the Buffalo area, he also represented Yuri Moshevsky. So my agent knew a little bit about it. Yuri Moshevsky went and played for the Chiefs. Um, there was another guy, by the na- his last name was Greenhaw, who my agent also represented, who went to the, the Quebec Radio X that, that played in the Colisée where the Nordiques used to play. Yep. So... So, so, so I had a couple examples of guys that have gone to this league that my agent represents. I knew the money was big. Now, we're talking things like $50,000 signing bonuses. Now, this is for minor pros. So I know that's not like big money when we're talking like NHL and all that kind of stuff. But when you're, when you're in the AHL and you're making 50, 60 grand, to get a $50,000 signing bonus is a big deal to you. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, so they're, they're throwing numbers out like that. They're throwing numbers out like $2,500 a week for two games. They're throwing numbers out like, we'll pay for your place. We'll give you a car to drive. Like, it was really like kind of unbelievable and kind of like wasn't even sure like if it was real type of thing when these offers are being thrown out. So I'm sitting in Chicago 
You're getting healthy scratched every single game, starting to get a little bit frustrated. I'm on a PTO, so I'm on a professional tryout agreement. Um, I remember I was on a 25-gamer, then they re-signed me to another 25-gamer. Hadn't even played a game yet, but I'm 26 games into the season. Haven't played a game yet. I'm on this new 25-game PTO, and now I'm getting this, this call from this guy from Quebec saying, you know, we want to give you a $50,000 signing bonus, pay you $2,500 a week, and, you know, you're going to have a great place to stay and this and that and the other. And, you know, and it's really hard when you're a competitive player to not play and to be sitting in the stands every single night. So there came a day where my agent was like, look, man, like, you know, do you want to do this? He's like, I don't want you to do it. You're in the AHL right now. There may be a couple of injuries. You can get into the lineup. You can earn your way. You know, I'd much rather you be in the AHL than to be in this Quebec league. But I said to him, I go, look, man, I'm not playing. You know, I never signed a big contract when I was younger. I was an eighth round pick. I didn't get, get big money. Like a lot of my peers that I'm playing with now, you know, like when you're an eighth round pick, you know, you're getting a 40, 50, $60,000 signing bonus from an NHL team where, you know, this is before the, the, the like the, the, they made the new rule um, yeah, they the made that Alexandra. Yeah yeah. 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 So like, you know, I, I, I'm playing with guys like, you know, Jason Palmanville and, you know, Thomas Vanek and these guys are, they, they got million dollar signing bonuses, man. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I got, and I got my $60,000 signing bonus. So, you know, it, it, it's a big difference. And like, so now that you're being offered kind of a chunk of money again, you're not playing, you want to play. And, and it's just kind of like, man, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do this. I want to play and I want to make some money. You know what I mean? So that's kind of how I got there from the recruiter. At first I thought I was going to Sherbrooke because my agent kind of negotiated the deal. And he told me that I was playing for a team that was just east of Montreal. So when we looked at the, at the, at the map, you know, Sherbrooke is just east of Montreal, but then so is the St. Hyacinth town. But I thought it was Sherbrooke at first. And, you know, the Roger Maxwell and a bunch of guys, uh, Mike Varhog, all these guys are in Sherbrooke. And I know that they're English-speaking guys. So, you know, I was feeling kind of good about it. But then, but then I found out that, that it was St. Hyacinth in, in, in French at saint Hyacinthe, and, and which was fine. But, 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 it, but it was a little bit of a mix-up at first of what town I was going to. And then, of course, when I went, you know, the, the first game was against the Chiefs with Brandon Sugden. You know, um, they were they totally honored all the stuff that they said. I had to play the first game before I got that signing bonus, and then everything was honored. Everything was cool. It was a it was a little bit um, scary at times because I mean, you're getting paid with a, a wad of cash in an envelope, and I know guys that have gone to the KHL like have the same kind of experiences where. I mean, those guys are making a hell of a lot of money, uh, more money in the KHL than we were in the Quebec League at that time. But, you know, I played, I, I played, when I was on the Chicago Wolves, I played with Freddie Brathwaite, um, the goalie. And, you know, he played in the KHL for, for a year or two. And when they would get paid, they would get these big brown envelopes of money. And, I mean, Brathwaite was probably making like a million dollars or whatever in the KHL. So whatever the breakdown was every month or every week or whatever it was, it's a hell of a lot of money. So what he would do was he would actually put the money in his goalie pads because they would pay the guys before practice. So where are you going to put your money? You're going to put your money in your stall in the dressing room. 
You're going to put your money in your car in the parking lot? Like, where are you going to put this 10, 15, 20,000 or, (laughs) you know know what I'm saying? Like, like, whatever it is. So guys didn't know what to do. So most guys, to be honest with you, would just have the cash on them during practice. Like, as funny as that sounds. But I know Brassweight put the cash right in his pads, man. Right, right during practice when he was in the KHL. And, and like, you know what I mean? So it was the same kind of thing, like, with us. Like, like we would get, like, they would pay us on a certain practice day. The, the practices that they wanted everyone to come to, that would be the payday just so everyone would show up. You know what I mean? But, yep. but again, they're, they're paying us before practice. What are we doing with this money? For me, it was 2500 bucks. So am I trusting that that $2,500, which is all $20 bills, is all going to be there when I come off the ice after practice? Like, you know what I mean? So yeah. it, was, it was a little bit uneasy that way, but everything was honored with what they said. And I'll tell you what, man, like when I first got there, it was quite the experience. Like the first game was against the Chiefs and Brandon Sugden, and the second game was against Sorrell with John Nasty Muraski. You know what I mean? So it was, it was, it was business right off the pop. And, um, and, and, but, but I'll tell you what, man, like, like the league is a good league now. And it, there's still the fighting that, that happens. Um, they made a salary cap. Everyone gets paid in check now. And, and they, they have a lot of skilled players now. And it's, it's the same, it's the same type of money that you'd be making in the coast. The only difference is, is that especially guys that are from Quebec is they can live at home work another job, play these two games a week. There's only like two practices a week and they're at night, okay? And it's the same money that they'd be making in the coast. And realistically, if you're playing in the coast, the chances are you're probably not going to be playing in the show anytime soon because there's such a depth chart with the AHL and whatnot. So a lot of guys now that are from the Quebec area or like Eastern, Eastern Ontario, like near Ottawa and and stuff like Cornwall, like they're actually choosing the LNAH over the ECHL because it's pretty much the same money, but they don't have to live in some dinky town in Texas where they're so far from their family and miserable. You know what I mean? They get to play close to home in Canada, work another job and be making the same kind of money that they would be in the coast. So, it's it's quite interesting how things change and like a guy that I played with on Saint Dias, uh, Saint Hyacin, um, he's actually the commissioner of the league now. Um, his last name's Laplante, JF Laplante, Jean Francois, and he's doing a great job, man. And he's actually trying to kind of increase the toughness and, and the tough guys because Quebec is a whole different culture, man. They, 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 with everything, when it comes to boxing, they're number one in Canada for, for, for people that follow boxing. Everybody knows that GSP is like a god in Montreal. and like You know what I mean? Like, like the whole fighting type of thing, like they, they're so much more into it in that province. And like, that's what I realized when I played there. I, played, I lived two years in Montreal, two years in Quebec City, and two years up in Jean-Pierre where I played with the Marquis. And, and I'll tell you what, man, like, it, it's a pretty cool place to play. Now that they got things cleaned up and it's all checks and, and, and all that type of stuff, and like, like it, it, it's actually a pretty good option. And I'm pretty sure that every team, I think, can have two players from outside Quebec. So anybody that's thinking of, of doing it or, or that's been contacted by a team, you know, give it a thought. Give it, give it consideration because it's actually a, a good league now. and There's lots of skill in the league. 
And, um, you know, the tough guys only fight the tough guys. A lot of people think, oh, well, I have to fight when I get there. No, it's not like that. The tough guys just fight the tough guys. The skilled guys do their thing. And, you know, there's systems and everything else like any other pro league. So, yeah, I never, I always, I always was kind of irritated that they put in that, the, the import rule, though. I'm thinking, you know, because I remember talking to a guy. I'm like, well, if you want toughness, I'm like, you're going to have to open it up. It's like, yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. I'm like, that import rule to me is just, it's silly. I don't know. To me, yeah. you're just, it's Pretty hard much, enough to the find guys. why they did it. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's hard enough to find guys, let alone now when you put restrictions on it. It's like, I don't yeah. know. I liked it better when it was wide open. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why they did it is because they wanted to, like, kind of, like, be recognized as yeah. a Quebec pro league where they thought that all these guys from Ontario were coming in and, and kind of watering it down as far as like, it wasn't really a Quebec league anymore. you like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but, but what I think that they're, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to open it up a little bit. I don't think there's anything wrong with having f- like five imports on each team. Like what's wrong with that? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's, there's 22, 23 guys on a roster. Why not have five? That could be outside, and and but but pretty much what it is is, it's it's to be an import. It's it's you didn't go through the Quebec Major Junior League system. So yeah. anybody from Newfoundland, from the Maritimes, from Quebec, and even those American like the 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 Maine like the, the, there's a team that's in Portland, Maine that that's in the Quebec Major Junior League. There's the, I think there's a couple American teams. So all those areas is all considered Quebec. So the Maritimes, Newfoundland, like all that stuff, it's all Quebec. Like the Quebec Major Junior League, um, like, uh, like, like, like route. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you're under the WHL or the OHL, um, the, the, like, like circuits, then you're considered an import. You know what I mean? You don't necessarily have to play Major Junior, but, 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 but you know exactly what I mean, though. So that's the way they have it now. I think they should change it. I think that they should, like you said, you should, they should open it up. At least a little bit more, because now that the league is 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 more respected, because there's more skill there, and it's not just a gong show. It's kind of cool that there's a league that still has you know like like guys on each team that fight every night, and you know it's it's centerized usually buckets off. You know what I mean? Oh, and yeah. it's and it's and, and and it's awesome, man. It's awesome. Well, I was gonna say, uh, yeah, like I've I know a friend of mine coached in that league. I've known guys that have gone through that league at that time. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, it was the Wild West. And uh, but, oh yeah, and I will say, out of all the the your two thousand seven two thousand eight season, yeah, in terms of enforcing, it has to be in terms of fighting and everything else. The both like combined between the regular season and the playoffs. I yeah. added it up, 665 battling minutes and 86 yeah. fights. Yes. Well, so, how yeah. you could even close your fists by the end of that <laughs> year, I'll never know. But I yeah. want to th- throw some names at you. Well, I yeah. can tell you, scrolling your fight card from that year, I almost got carpal tunnel. It was that long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I'm going to throw some names at you. And back then, folks, anybody listening, you go look at those rosters. We're not talking two guys. We're it, these things, It's like five and six guys deep. You know, yeah. But you've mentioned him earlier, and he's a big dude out west here. I saw him in the Western League, Mike Varhog. Yes, yes. Now, 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 Varhog. He he um he had he had um a way that he would fight that was so that was so good for him. 
he used he he used his reach and just the angle that he would come at you. It was very very hard to fight the guy. The guy was not very big as far as like weight wise. Obviously, the man was. I think he was six. I think he's six eight or six nine maybe. But um, but he. He just had a technique that worked so good for him. And it was really hard to reach the guy. He kind of did like the spin kind of like Domi, but the man was 6'9". Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so like, he's, I think he's probably the same size as Zdeno, as Zdeno Chara. But, like, when you and, – and here's the difference. And, like, I remember talking to Yuri Moshevsky when I first came to the league. And, you know, coming from the AHL, like – you know, you're coming to a league like that, and you're like, you know what, like, like how tough could these guys really be? Like, I mean, wouldn't they be at a higher level if they were that tough? And you're thinking to yourself, and you're like, you know, they can't be that tough. But you're wrong. Because what it is, is it's, it's how much you fight, just like anything else. How much you practice, how much you practice is how, is how good you're going to be. How much you fight is how effective you're going to be. Because you're going to learn different techniques, you're gonna you're gonna learn, you know, you're gonna callous you're gonna callous your fist up, you're gonna be ready to go. So if you're fighting every single weekend, every single weekend, you're gonna get pretty good at it. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. what the difference is. The NHL and AHL, even like ten, fifteen years ago, sometimes guys would you know, they, they, they'd go a month without getting in a tilt. Like, you know what I mean? Like like I remember like talking to Dale Hunter when I was in London and, you know, he had um, that, uh, that, that Craig Berube guy that he played with a lot in Washington, and, and you know, they, they used to call him Chief. And, and, and Dale would tell me, he'd be like, you know, Chief would, Chief would start the year. He knew that, it, you know, he needed to get his 20 majors, and as long as he did that, then boom, he'd get signed for the next year. So 20 majors, that's a fight every four games if, if, you're, if, if you're, you know what I mean? Like, yep. So it's, it's, it, 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 it's really not that often even when fighting was regular we're in quebec you're fighting at least once a game usually twice and there's two games so it's so much more that you just kind of it's just automatic man like it, it's just it just comes with the territory and i mean a guy like like john moraski like that guy i like like out of out of anyone out of anybody that i've ever played against I think that he's the most seasoned fighter out of everybody. Like, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the consistency, if you look at the fact that he's a toe-to-toe fighter, like, I mean, I don't think that there's a guy that's more seasoned. And what I mean by that is the amount of fights with the the longevity of, of his career and, like, just the consistency of him being a top guy being a toe-to-toe guy that's under six feet, getting hit every single time the exchange is made. Like, if you watch me and Morassi's fights, all me and Morassi's fights are entertaining because Morassi's a toe-to-toe. So whenever anyone's fighting him, they're going toe-to-toe, so it's exciting. But the thing is, is that Johnny's only hitting you half the time where you're hitting Johnny every time because of the height difference, right? Yep. So... It's it's quite unbelievable, man. Like he had one year where you know Steve Bosse got him a few times and stuff, but other than that year, I think he's every year he's won the majority of his fights. 
and that he's probably had about 40 or 50 every single season, man. And he oh, played yeah. in Quebec for a long time. He had a good, good little run in Syracuse in the AHL. You know, shout out to John Morasti, man. We're the same age. And, um, and yeah, man, we're, 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 we're friends now. And in the beginning, we didn't really like each other that much, but then we kind of learned that, you know, we're both good guys and we're just doing our job. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's quite interesting how all that works. Same thing with Steve Bosse. I mean, I was Steve Bosse's last fight before he made the UFC. And, um, and, you know, like, and again, we didn't really like each other in the beginning, but we just kind of learned to respect each other just because we're both good guys and we're just doing what we have to do, man. How, you know, so, how hard did that dude hit? Oh, man. Like, he's, he's, um, and like, I, I mean, again, it, it, it's, it's hard to talk about, but he, he buckled me so bad. It was my first fight against him. He was, he was playing for the Chiefs. I was in St. Hyacinth. We were in their home arena. I think they were in St. Jean that year. The town was called the St. They were the St. Jean Chiefs. And he caught me really good in the chin. I went down, smacked my head against the ice, buddy. And that was like, I've been very lucky in my career. Like, I think I've only had about two or three concussions. One of them was when I was a kid. One of them was Steve Bosse. And then I know that I've had at least another one, but like, you know what I mean? But like, it's, I've been lucky. Like I've been, I've been, I'm, I'm three, I'm, I'm three or under with the concussions, but Steve Bosse definitely gave me one. And he has the hardest punch I've, I've ever, I've ever faced. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how he does it. I mean, he's a bit, he is a big, strong guy, but I mean, he's probably about maybe six one, two twenty five, two thirty five, 235. And somehow he just has such strength in his right hand. And I mean, the man, the man made the UFC, right? So yeah, well, that's he's doing exactly. something right. Yeah. Well, another name I'll throw at you before we keep, we move on, but I mean, another Quebec legend and he played in the, in the, in the American league for a little while. And then, you know, really found a niche in the LNAH and he was there forever. Um, was the animal Joel Thero. Um, oh man. You know, and he's, yeah. and he's had, uh, and he's a legend on and off the ice. He's had issues, yeah. but, uh, yeah. w- what was it like fighting Joel? Cause I, I've heard stories that it's, uh, he's, uh, he's, you know, has a few, he gets wound up pregame and it's, uh, and it's ready yeah. to rock and roll right away. What was that like okay. facing him? Okay. So, uh, Lanny Mal, which is L apostrophe animal. Yeah. <laughs> the, the animal. Now he is nicknamed that. For off the ice, yep. okay? Now, <laughs> on the ice, he's also the animal, right? But, like, Joel has the biggest rage out of anyone that I've played. Um, somehow, I mean, any any people can assume things. It's not really fair to say, like, you know, if, if, if people take things to make them act certain ways or whatever. Like, it's not fair to say that unless you know for sure. But somehow he's able to get so fired up that he is, he's honestly, he's like a scary, a scary guy to play against because you don't know if he's going to cross check you in the face and knock all your teeth out. You don't know if he's going to butt end you in the eye. You don't know if if he's going to, if he's going to run up to you in a body check and just knee you right in the face. Like you don't know what he's going to do. At any time, and that's the scary part of it. Now, saying that, he's also one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, and it, and it's and it's very very interesting 
how people can be so extreme on different ends. You know what I mean? And yeah. like with him, like I know that he also had an issue um, with the law, which which didn't allow him to continue his like career in the AHL and whatnot. But I believe that if he didn't have that hurdle of crossing the border, that he would have been a regular NHL tough guy for many years, man. Because there's nobody really that, I mean, the guy is 6'4", 6'5", 240 pounds. He can skate pretty well. You know what I mean? He can, he can, he can hit, and he, he throws the hardest left-hand bombs that, I, that I've ever experienced. And, and he, he has no fear in him. He, he, he played until he, he was like, like I, I don't know how old he was that last year that he played. I think he was like 40, right? Yep. And he's a really, really good boxer too. Like he's got his boxing license in Quebec and, you know, he makes a little bit of money boxing and stuff too. And he's just, he, he's the animal. It, it's a perfect nickname for the man. Like he, he is an animal and he's, um, Man, I'm I'm telling I'm telling you, man. Like you do not want to be in his bad books when he has a stick in his hand. Because I, so I've heard. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, it's man. funny you mentioned he, about the NHL. Uh, somebody I yeah. was listening to a podcast with George LaRock, and George faced him in the Quebec yeah. League or in uh, uh, Quebec Junior growing up. There in Junior, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And George said the same thing you said. He should have been in the NHL. No, a hundred percent. And like, oh. I I think it was just something. It was just something stupid. It was a silly charge, but but the result of it was that he couldn't cross the border, and he just wasn't able to, to like to play in the U.S. So I think that was the only thing that held him back, man. I mean, I mean, who knows? Like, I, like you know, like like maybe there could have been other reasons why he wouldn't have made it. But like, I think that he would have been a regular tough guy in the NHL because there's no way that he wasn't as tough as some of the NHL uh, regular tough guys. Because oh yeah, he, he must have been. Oh, he must sure. have been, and yeah. some, and yeah. some. Well, when so, George when George LaRock says it, it's like, well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, well, yeah. so from that, so we got the crazy Quebec League and everything else. And, uh, that, well, obviously, you, you're back in the American League the following year in Rockford. Yeah, um, yeah. So so now, now, now the cool thing about that 86 fight season, and, like, I, I, just, want, I, I just want people to understand that that year – um, I played for the top team in the Quebec League, okay? So we finished first in the regular season, and we went all the way. I think it, I, I don't think it was game seven. I think, I think we went all the way to game six of the finals. So we played over 20 games in the playoffs because it was three rounds, and I think the first two rounds were both seven-game series, and I think the finals was six. So I think it was 20 games that I played in the playoffs. So the 86 fights is the regular season games, which I think was close to about 50. And then I think that the 20 games, so it was 70 games where I had the 86 fights. Yep. So I fought every game, and then a lot of games I had two. Okay, and that includes the playoffs. So that's how I got there. If I played for the worst team and didn't make the playoffs, it would have been like a 50-fight season or a 60-fight season. But because I was on the top team and made it all the way to game six of the finals, which we lost the three rivers, Trois Rivières, um, that, that's what enabled me to get those numbers up so high. 
I'm not trying to take anything away from myself because it was quite the accomplishment. I was extremely lucky to stay healthy that year. I had a really, really, really cool bunch of guys. We had five tough guys on our team that year. We bonded really well. We had some excellent trainers and like it, everything just worked out really well where I was able just to keep it going and the confidence was there and you know, I was making good money and, and I, w- I was living in a nice place and I was happy and, and I, I was with a really, really awesome girl at that time and, and everything in my life just worked out really well and, and, and when things are work well around you, you're able to perform really, really well and it was just one of those years. So based on that season, I was able from the pre LNAH, this was, it was, it was, I think they started calling it the LNH at that time, but it was still kind of the wild, wild West. Like it was before from the wild, wild West Quebec league. I got an NHL training camp invite from the Edmonton Oilers. I'm not sure if you know that. Yes, but, I was, actually, I saw yep. your, your I saw your picture on Getty there, on Getty Images. Okay, I right have, on. Okay, I have right it on. with your Oilers jersey and stuff. Nice, yeah. nice, nice. So I was able to get an NHL invite from the Quebec League because of the noise that I made getting those 86 fights. That was the year that, that Edmonton ended up bringing in Big Mac, McIntyre, yep. but they didn't really bring him in until after training camp. They had me, they had Hans Benson, I'm sure people know that name. Um, damn, there was a couple of us that they had brought in. Me and Hans Benson had a couple battles in the inner squad games, um, and they were just looking for a tough guy. I mean, I, I don't think McGratton was in Calgary yet, but someone was in Calgary, and Edmonton and Calgary are always measuring up against each other, right? So Edmonton wanted to have a guy, you know, they're, they're okay, there's this guy, you know, he, oh, he broke the record for fights in a, in a pro year, well, we're going to bring him in. We're going to bring Hans Benson in, who had a good AHL season last year. We're going to bring this. You know what I mean? So, so that's what they did. And they brought a couple of us in. It was an incredible experience to go to an NHL um, uh, training camp because I'd been to Buffalo and I'd been to Chicago, right? And so it, it, was, it, it was pretty awesome, man, going to Edmonton. And, like, I know Edmonton struggled, like, the last few years. But, I mean, at, at the end of the day, their history is still richer than – than most of the NHL teams, and it was really, really cool to be a part of that. And then, so what happened was, when I ended up getting sent down from Edmonton, um, I ended up getting back to the AHL that year for the Rockford Ice Hogs, who, who, who are the, who the, the affiliate for the Chicago Blackhawks, right? So um, it was pretty cool, because the year that, the year that I was with the Chicago Wolves, that, that, I, that I went to the Quebec League, um, I went to Blackhawks camp the year after I didn't resign with, um, with, with, with Buffalo. So I went to Blackhawks camp, shit didn't work out, ended up with the Chicago Wolves somehow, even though they have nothing to do with each other, wasn't playing, went to Quebec, was in Quebec for two seasons. After that second season, I had the big year with all the fights and stuff, got me right back to the AHL. First through Edmonton, then I went, then, then because, Again, guys, keeping good terms with people, not burning bridges. The Rockford Ice Hogs were looking for a tough guy. Al McIsaac, who was the GM of Rockford at the time, or he was, he was with the Blackhawks, but he was like the director of player personnel for whatever. He just called me because he still had my number from me going to that camp a couple of years previous. He just called me and said, we're going to bring you into Rockford. You know what I mean? So they brought me right into Rockford. 
And you know, and then that was the year that I that I won my third AHL Man of the Year award for the community service stuff. And um, that year, I didn't play a lot of games that year. I think I might have played about maybe like forty games or something like that. Um, and I and I think I might have had like maybe like eighteen or twenty fights or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was cool. I got to fight Morasti that year. Um, he was playing for Syracuse. They came into Rockford. We had a pretty good tilt. I'm pretty sure that one's on YouTube. Yep. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience playing in Rockford, man. That's a blue-collar town. They got the cowbells going there. And, and it's just it, it's a really, like, really cool place to play for the Rockford Ice Hogs. And, um, yeah, I'm really, really great that I, ha- I got that experience for sure. Okay. Uh, well, and now here's another uh, moving on. The, the following year. And again, on the Twitter and stuff, I've talked to people. I have a lot of lot of uh, followers over in Europe, and uh, and you're still talked about over there. And uh, you you end up in Belfast with the Giants yeah. in the EIHL. How was your experience in the UK, and uh, how did how did you like Belfast? Absolutely loved Belfast. I would say it was probably the funnest year that I had in my career. Um. The whole thing with Belfast, for people that, that don't know the history of Northern Ireland, um, there's a big division between the communities, between the Catholics and Protestants. And it, it, the history goes way back. And I mean, we could talk about that forever, but to just to be, to, to, to generalize it, they were looking for a tough guy that would also be a big community guy because the community is a very important thing in there because of the division. Now, the interesting thing about the Belfast Giants is because it's a new sport, ice hockey over there, that traditionally teams will be either Catholic teams or Protestant teams based on the colors. You got the, the, the Celtic and the Rangers, and you got it, 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 that's just kind of how it works over there. Like, you know what I mean? Just because of history. But now you got this new sport, this new team. So, what they did was they picked all neutral colors. They, they did the, 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 the reason why it's called the Giants is because it's the Giants Causeway, which is the northern tip of Ireland. Um, that's the Giants Causeway that's in between Ireland and Scotland. And, and back in the day, they said that there was these big giants that would walk through the water on the stones. And they'd be able to walk from Ireland to Scotland. And there were these big giants. And it has nothing to do with religion. So they did that all on purpose to try to bring the community together. They also have a rule that you cannot, they also have a rule that you cannot enter the arena with any colors other than the Belfast Giants colors. If you're going to wear any sports gear, you either wear regular clothes or you have to wear Belfast Giants jersey. You can't wear anything else, okay? There's no national anthem at that arena, okay? Just so people know. So there's no, there's no like fighting in the stands because people are, you know, standing for the national anthem because it, it, it's that big of a controversy over there. So for me coming there, being this guy that was this big community guy, it was just perfect for me because I did all those appearances. I would go into Catholic community centers where they would bus in the Protestant kids. And then the whole spiel was, I mean, for those that don't know, you know, I'm a biracial kid. My father's black. My mother's white. You know, so I look like a light-skinned black guy, especially on the ice, okay? So that's just the reality. I mean, I don't want anyone to get offended by the way I'm saying it, but that's just the way that it is. So 
for me, obviously, I look different from the average hockey player. You know what I mean? Like, like I don't, I'm not, I, like, when people think of hockey players and they see me, like, I'm not the type of person that they usually see, right? So, yeah. for me, when I would go in there, I, I could give the message that much better because the, the Protestant kids aren't used to hanging out with the Catholic kids because they're a little bit different. Even though they look exactly the same and they're both Christian, they're still very different from their beliefs and their cultures. So what I would do is I would go in there and say, look, guys, you know, if I followed the path of not, not being around people that, that, are, that, that look like me or that, or that might believe in the same things that I believe in, then I would never be able to experience anything that I have in my career. I wouldn't be here right now talking to you guys, and I wouldn't have been able to learn half the things that I've learned. So what you need to do is you need to take a leap of faith just because someone is brought up different than you doesn't mean that they can't be your brother. And that was kind of the main message of what I would do when it was strictly between the Catholics and Protestants. And I really loved it, man. And, and, I, and I really embraced it. I started two YouTube shows on, on the, the two teams that I played with in the UK were the, the Belfast Giants and the Dundee Stars. If you go on YouTube, there's GTV, Giants TV, and there's Stars TV. I did a behind-the-scenes TV show for both for both clubs, where I'd interview players, go around the room with the with the camera, and do all that type of stuff. And 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 I and I absolutely loved it. When I was in Belfast, um, they loved the fighting in Belfast. They love you know these these are Irish men that are coming from the pub, and they, this is a new sport for them, and they're all fired up, and they they just want to see a good old old-fashioned scrap. So that's what I was able to give to them. And I didn't even realize how important it was at the time. But there's a guy by the name of Brad Voss yep. that played for the Cardiff Devils. He's from out west, from where you are, I yes, think. I, I don't know if he's Alberta or... Oh, he's sorry? a Saskatchewan boy. I know Vother. Yeah. Is he? Is he? Okay, right on. Yeah. Now, 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 Brad Voss is a very good hockey player, very tough hockey player. But he was very, very, very much hated from the Belfast fans because the man pretty much ran the league before I got there. He would run around. No one could say anything to him. No one could do anything to him. He's six foot five. You know, he's 230 pounds and he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a skilled fighter and, and he just had his way with everybody and he bullied a lot of the teams. So my first game against Brad Voss, it, which is on YouTube, I actually put him down with a couple lefts and that was the first time that he'd been put down. And I didn't realize how important it was at the time, but it was a really, really, really big deal to all the Belfast faithful. The fact that Brad Voss had been put down and, and they said that he was never the same after that, but that's just Giants fans talking, right? Like if you ask a Devils fan, he was probably just as consistent as ever until the day that he stopped playing. Right. And like, and so with Voss, um, we had a little bit of a rivalry. I think we fought two or three times that year. Um, he got me pretty good in one of them. And, um, and yeah, I did well against him, probably in like two out of three of them. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty cool because, um, you know, obviously the league, you know, wasn't as tough as like the Quebec league and stuff, but like every team still had a guy. And the interesting part is that the second year that I was there, because I kind of like made like, you know, like, like an impact in the league. I put a lot of effort into it, so I'm glad that I was able to. But the next year, it was funny because every single team 
got made sure that they had a legit tough guy and then like a secondary tough guy. So it was kind of cool to see that because I was just back in, that was only like eight, nine years ago. Like that was like 2010, you know what I mean? Yep. And like, so, so it was, it was pretty cool. Like, like I, I got, I got Alex Penner to the lead weapon X, you know, he came in Nottingham the next year and, and you know, like they, 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 every team, every team brought someone in the next year and, 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 and the media said that, it, you know, that it was because Belfast, you know, they, they brought one guy in last year and now every team is following suit and they're bringing a guy in. And they even, they even started a, a new award called Entertainer of the Year Award. You know what I mean? So, so it, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Like, like the experience I had with that. Um, the only problem with that is that like, like I, I, I'm not, I, like it, it, it depends on you, like, like how much you want to get into this, but like, I ended up, I ended up, um, I ended up having to leave two weeks early because I had to deal with all the court stuff in, in the States. And, um, and that kind of like the year was still great, but it just didn't finish great because of all that court stuff that I had to end up dealing with. And I had actually had to leave, uh, two weeks before the season actually finished. The difference between Europe and North America though, is that their playoffs are very short like it's more about the regular season over there because it's all based kind of around like kind of the way soccer works. So like the regular season, like the regular season champs would be like a really big deal in Europe. And then the playoffs would be like a weekend where it'd be like the top four teams. And you know what I mean? It'd be like a semifinals and a finals. And, and then like, that's it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not like over here where there's four rounds of playoffs and you're, you're in the playoffs for two months. And like, it's not like that over there. So it's more about the season. And then it's just kind of like a couple games at the end that decide like who the best team really is. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I only missed a few games, but I was disappointed just because I wasn't there to finish it up. Well, then the following year, like you, you kind of mentioned Dundee. Um, now, you got there and it, you're kind of rolling along, but you only played the 12 games and then you had to go. What happened there? Okay. So, so, so what happened was I, um, and like, I mean, it's like I said, guys, like, like it was very hard for me to talk about this, you know, years after and all that type of stuff. But like, I mean, time is gone. And like, like I was talking to you before we started the podcast, like, Mistakes you make in your life, you have to own those mistakes and you have to learn from them. And usually events, even bad, really bad events that happen in your life, even if it was a bad experience, just getting through that experience helps you in the rest of your life. Okay? So I don't have a problem talking about the, the, the issue that happened. It's a very unfortunate thing that happened to me and it, and it happened right around the end of Belfast and Dundee. So what happened was, is I got indicted for a charge in the United States, in upstate New York. It was a marijuana conspiracy charge, just so everybody knows. It was a marijuana conspiracy charge, okay? And the reason why I'm saying it like that is because the laws in the state are a lot different than the laws in Canada and the laws overseas. And, and, and by saying that is what I mean is that this whole, like, like, is it okay if I talk about it for a couple of minutes just to get it over with? It's your interview, absolutely. Whatever you okay, want to awesome, do. awesome. So I'm going to talk about it for a couple of minutes just to kind of clear the air. So in the United States, they have a charge called conspiracy. How it came about was everybody knows those five um, popular families from New York that were the mob families, guys like John Gotti and, and all those guys. And, and what happened was they were never able to nail these mob, these mob leaders, like guys like John Gotti. 
So what the, what, the, what the federal government did in the states was they invented this new charge called the conspiracy charge. So what it was is they could never get John Gotti for any of the crimes that he did. So what they did was they started this charge called conspiracy, which meant all they had to do, well, it's not an easy thing, but all they had to do was get more than one person to testify that John Gotti was part of something, and then they could charge him as if they were just fully charging him in the get-go. Like, for example, let's say he assaulted someone. They could never prove that he did it. But if they could get two people to say that John Gotti was part of the assault, they don't need any physical evidence. They don't need any videotape. They don't need, they don't even need any picture. All they need is more than one person that's willing to testify that John Gotti was part of the conspiracy and they could charge him with conspiracy assault. Not assault, conspiracy assault. So what happened with me, guys, was that when I was playing in Rochester, New York, I'm the type of guy that I have many circles of friends. I have friends that are computer nerds. I have friends that drive high-speed motorcycles. I have friends that are university professors. I have friends that hang out in, in pool bars. I have all different sorts of friends. Marijuana is now a, a substance that's legal in Canada, so I don't really care about talking about it. I'm not ashamed of it. I do smoke marijuana once in a while. It's now legal. It's not a big deal. At that time, it wasn't legal, but I was still doing it. I had a couple friends that were involved in that, okay? Now, when I say involved in that, I mean that, yeah, they were making money off it, okay? They were my friends that after games, maybe I would have a couple beers with my teammates. Then I would go to my buddy's house and smoke a joint, okay? So a lot of people do that. A lot of people might not like what I'm saying right now, but I'm just being honest with you. So you got to give me that respect for telling the truth. I had a couple friends like that. Three years after I left Rochester, my friends got it. My, my so-called friends got involved with something completely different. They got in a lot of trouble and they got arrested. They got put in jail and they were facing some serious time. What they did was they found a way to get themselves out of trouble. They said that they were ready to talk, that they knew about an NHL hockey player that was involved in a marijuana operation and they were willing to talk about it if they could get a deal on their current charge. The FBI jumped all over it, seeing how the guy that they were talking about was a guy that has won community awards, that was, you know, had a big personality. And to be honest with you guys, I mean, I know some of you might be rolling your eyes right now, but that's kind of how it works. With the FBI and, 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 and agencies like that, they arrest the same type of people every single day, every single day. They're arresting these every single day. They're arresting these poor people that are in the hoods. You know, they're arresting them, arresting them, arresting them. Oh, okay, so now they got an opportunity where they got a guy that plays in the NBA or, or an NHL or an AHL guy, a guy that wins community awards. What? We're, we've been told that he's been doing this? They jump all over it. That's just the way it is. We live in a cruel world sometimes. So they started an investigation on me when... I was still in Rochester. It was like, it was my, it was my fourth year. They started the investigation because that's when my buddies got in trouble. But they, they put the indictment out when I was at the end of the season, when I was in Belfast, I was indicted. I, 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 my, my, I hired a lawyer. My lawyer negotiated with them that if I, if I voluntarily came in to face the charges, that I would be able to have a bond where there was no restrictions and no conditions, okay? 
I was charged with conspiracy marijuana trafficking. Okay. There was never any marijuana. There was never any videos. There was never any pictures. There was never anything. What there was, was there was two people that were willing to testify that I was part of an operation and in the United States, that's how it works. A lot of people don't understand that. When they read articles about what happened, it doesn't say conspiracy. It just says drug charges or whatever it says. You know what I mean? And that's the unfair thing about the media. When you sign a plea agreement, the media is allowed to print anything that's in that plea agreement because you signed it. You may not agree with everything that's in there or, or anything that's in there, but because you signed it, because that was in your best interest at the time, it's fair game for the media to write about anything that is in that plea agreement, even if it's not true. It's just part of the plea agreement. You signed it because you were in a tough situation, and it's what you had to do at the time. I believe, my family believes, my lawyer claims he believes that I was going to get probation from this. It was a very, very big shock of what the outcome was. I was indicted in, I was indicted, it was, when was it? It was March 2010, okay? It took two years for the court to happen. The next season, after I got indicted, I signed with the Dundee Stars because everybody thought it was so ridiculous. And at this time, the United States was not the favorite country of most nations because of all the shit they were doing, like with, like, like with all the wars and, and all this type of stuff. And, and it, was, it, it looked really, really incredible, the indictment, because they were saying that it was four years and 11 months after the last known crime. There's a five-year statute of limitation for drug charges in the state, and they said that it was four years and 11 months after the last known crime, it was the minimal requirements for a federal indictment that I was charged with, okay? And this was based on what they said was five years before. And the whole thing was completely ridiculous. But technically, they could do it. And technically, they did do it. And it took two years from the indictment to the sentencing. The first year I played for the Dundee Stars, but what I had, to, but what had, what ended up happening is I had to start going to more court appearances. I I didn't think it was going to be so often. I thought that it was going to be like maybe once every two months. And even though it was going to be expensive, even though I had no conditions, no restrictions. So you think that a guy that had this big drug operation, are they going to let him play in Scotland, play hockey while he's indicted? Like none of it made sense, right? But I had to live through this. And I had to try to make the best of it. I had to stay positive. I was raised extremely well from my mother. It was devastating to my family. I was indicted two years before I was sentenced. When I was sentenced, it was in Rochester, New York. I had 25 family members in the courtroom. I was engaged at the time to a beautiful girl from Rochester, New York. She had 20 of her family members in the courtroom. I had a big family party planned in Toronto that evening because everybody thought that I was going home that day and that I was going to get a probation sentence. And when the judge announced, I hereby sentence you to the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a term of 24 months, I almost fainted 
Everyone in the courtroom was deadly shocked. There was silence for about seven or eight minutes, and I was gone. There was no, there was no negotiating when I could surrender or anything like that. I was gone. It was the sheriff's department that drove me to the county jail, and I had to do 20 months out of a 24-month sentence because I had a super clean record because I just wanted to get out of there as soon as I can. I was a first-time offender with no violence and no weapons. Therefore, I was able to go to the most minimal of minimal of minimal security places. They call it a camp. There was no fence. It was a camp for guys that mostly did white-collar crimes and did, like, you know, tax fraud and stupid shit like that. And that's where I was. It was in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, about a half an hour from Penn State University. Um, I was able to get visitation from Thursday through Sunday all day long. I had people that came every single week. People were very upset with what happened. There was a bunch of appeals that were made. This was a marijuana conspiracy charge in the United States. They said it was five years before they, before they did the indictment, which is the arrest warrant. And it was a really unfortunate situation. When I told the stars that I had to start going to court, they just said, well, what do you want to do? Then I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I have an offer from my old team in Quebec, and it might be better if I play there because then I'll be able to make these court appearances and stuff because it'll just be like a four or five hour drive instead of flying across the, across the, the Atlantic Ocean. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's what I had to go through. I know this is a little bit longer than a couple of minutes that I said that I'd talk about it. But, I mean, now that the time's passed and I've learned what I've learned and, and, you know, time obviously heals a little bit of stuff too, guys. And, like, it's just really unfortunate. And, and the thing that you have to understand is that when people get in trouble, you can't just read articles and just have your conclusion on that because the articles are based on if the person had to sign a plea agreement, if they had to plead guilty because they didn't really have a choice, in the United States, there's a 98% conviction rating in conspiracy um, trials because it's very easy to convict someone in a conspiracy. You just have to kind of prove that they were part of the group. You don't necessarily have to prove how much part of the group they were, but if they were a little bit a part of the group, which I was, these were my buddies, they have phone records that I was in contact with them. There's, there was never any evidence of marijuana. There was never any pictures. There was never any videos. This was all hearsay. And that's how it works in the United States. And that's why they say the American justice system is broken. That's why they say these things, because of little things like this. This isn't a little thing, but it's little compared to the mass amount that is wrong with that justice system in that country. I love the United States. I was engaged to an American girl, and I, I, I have many friends down there. I'm very upset because I can't cross the border right now. I put in all the paperwork to do so. I think I got to wait maybe maybe 13 or 14 more months. And then I think that I'll be able to do it because I haven't really been in trouble since I got into a little car accident up in Quebec, which is another story. But, but in the grand scheme of things, I've kind of kept my nose clean and I, I think that I'm going to get approved for the pardon. So <laughs> then I'll be able to go back to Rochester where I played for four years, where I'm third all time in penalty minutes and the oldest AHL team other than the Hershey bears. And I'll actually be able to be part of the alumni and go to all the things that I've been invited to every single year because I had such a good experience in Rochester. You know what I mean? I haven't been able to do any of that. 
There's a part of my life that has been held back because of the court stuff. And, you know, the 20 months, I'll tell you what, I was able to, I, I never finished high school because I was bounced around in the OHL so much. I was able to get my high school diploma while I was there. I was able to take a bunch of business classes. I was able to, to take the best advantage of that time that I was gone. And to tell you what, guys, like, I know whatever, I'm dragging this on, but it, it, I haven't really had a chance to kind of talk like this to the public. I'm glad that I'm given the opportunity now on this podcast. And, and that's that. So with Dundee, we, we mutually parted ways. They didn't want to say, like, that they were cutting me. They didn't want to say that I left the team. So we just said that we mutually parted ways. And then I signed with the Marquis de Jean-Pierre, uh, the team that I got the 86 fights with. And, um, and yeah, and I, and I played, I, I played, um, I played that season, obviously then I, then I had to go away for a couple for a couple seasons. And then I ended up coming back for another couple seasons. So I know that that went way longer than, oh, than I, hey, no, was, so. was, uh, I know people are interested. But, that they, I mean, it's obviously, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we're well, not talking. So, okay. So just last thing, whenever guys get in trouble, please guys do not just read those articles and think that those are the facts. They're basing that information on plea agreements that most people that sign a plea agreement, they're doing it because they're in a certain situation and it's what they have to do. I was facing two five-year minimums and I wasn't willing to risk 10 years of my life over marijuana then. So what I did was I signed, I pled, I pled guilty to it. There was no ground. It was up to the judge. I think the judge was influenced a little bit to make an example of me. And for some reason, he dropped the bomb. And, and like, you know what I mean? And it was, it was the most shocking thing that anyone has experienced that was in that courtroom, man. Because I'll tell you what, there was a really cool party planned for that night in Toronto, and it had to get canceled as soon as the judge said those words. So lucky for me, I have huge family support, huge friend support. You know, my fiance sticks with me through the whole time, you know, we ended up you know, getting jobs in two different countries after I got out, and that was the reason for the split. But I had so much support from everyone in my life, and I'm very, very lucky. All my hockey people were behind me. People sent me letters while I was there. I was in a, a thing that they call a camp. There was not even a fence around it, guys. It was like literally like they, they, call, they call it club fed. I don't know if you ever heard that term. Yeah. But it, when, you, when you're a first-time offender with no violence or no weapons in your case, and especially if it's a conspiracy case, then, then that, then that's where they put you. So that was that, that was the reason why it was just the, the short amount in Dundee because I had to start going to more court cases and we decided to kind of mutually split. And, um, you know, the team, the, the team with the marquee, uh, Dean Litigascos was my coach and GM and he was very understanding. He knew everything that was going on. He was hoping that, you know, that, that I wasn't going to have to go the way that I went, but you know, it ended up happening. And when it was all said and done, um, you know, I played two years after that guys, like I wasn't going to let that stop what I was doing. And my last two seasons that I played, you know, they, they were really strong seasons and I was really happy, you know, like being a part of a, a pro hockey team again. And, you know, a lot of people don't get that opportunity, but I did and I embraced it. And um, I probably could have played a couple more years after that, but I, I, I just, you know, like, like, like stuff happens and, and, you know, you can't play forever. Right. So, um, yeah, 
that was uh, I'm not sure where you want to go from here. Well, but I was going to say that. that was, well, that pretty well says it all. I mean, you came. I mean, yeah, it was great. It, I wanted you to get out, you know, tell your story, but also, yeah, you know, from you know, with the with the jail, like you said, there's a lot of stories out there online and people read, and I know yeah. you, you have a lot of fans, and everybody just still doesn't really know. And I'm like, well, I want to get them on the show and get it right from the horse's mouth. So there you yeah, go, folks. Yeah. You got the story, and uh, no, it was great for you. To, I mean, as a fan. Uh, it was great for, for me, and I know a lot of the guys, we were really happy to see you come back. You had the really strong yeah. last two years in the Quebec League, and uh, and uh, no, it's been great talking to you today, and I wanted to get your story out there for people to hear, and uh, I thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, but before you, I, how are you, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? I mean, like you said, after five, I've looked it up. I can't even remember the total, but it was like 500 plus career fights and 3,600 yeah, penalty I, minutes and everything else. Yeah. How is, uh, how are you doing with your hands and your, and your shoulders and everything? How, how are you feeling I'm, these days? I'm doing great. I, I was able to crack the 500, um, number my last season that I played. So that was a really big milestone for me. Um, it obviously helped getting the 86 in the one year, <laughs> Unbelievable. but like, um, yeah, I was able to get to the 500 club and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for that. I'm, I'm very blessed. I mean, obviously everybody knows that, you know, that, that I'm, I'm not a toe to toe fighter. Sometimes I'll go toe to toe, but I have many different styles. I, 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 I can throw with both hands. So I think I'm a little bit lucky that way. I think if I was just a pure righty that I probably would have broke my hand a bunch of times, but, um, I'm feeling really good. I was going to make a, it's funny because, you know, when most people stop playing hockey, there's a transition that happens. And like a lot of people kind of get down. A lot of people don't, but regardless of that, it's still a transition. So I, I needed, when I stopped playing, I kind of needed to figure myself out a little bit. I kind of needed to know, you know, what direction I was going into. So I would say for maybe about a year, a year and a half, I was, I, I was, I was a little bit confused. I really didn't know what I was going to get into. Um, there was an opportunity that I was supposed to get hired from Sportsnet. That was kind of the reason why I decided to stop playing after my last year. Um, there was a, I'll be very quick with this. There was a situation where I got a call from Ken Reed, who's the sports anchor from Sportsnet. Now, Ken Reed has a hobby that he writes books. Um, that's his passion. His first book that he had in stores is called Hockey Card Stories. So what that book was is, is anybody that has a hockey card that's in the NHL, what he did was he picked out a bunch of guys. And, and, and what the point of the book was is for the guys to tell the background story to what was happening during that picture that's on their hockey card. So it was pretty interesting. The second one that he came out with was called One Night Only, which is in stores right now. Now, what he did with that one was he picked 10 players, I think mostly from the Ontario area, I think, or, or they might be all just Canadian. 10 Canadian hockey players that all played one regular season NHL game. So I was lucky enough that he chose me as one of the players. He called me an afternoon in the second part of the season, in my last season that I played in Quebec, and we did about a two-hour phone interview for my part in the book. Um, the book is called One Night Only. It's in stores now. And at the end of the interview, um, Ken, Ken was like, look, Sean, he's like, you know, I only needed like about 25 to a 30 minutes but you know we've gone on for two hours here kind of like me and you right now and and i and i must say man that i let you go on because of the way that your knowledge of the sport and the way that you kind of talk about it 
you know, I think that you'd be a really good fit for an NHL analyst with Sportsnet. And to be honest with you, Sean, I'm part of the recruitment team for, for the NHL division. So he's like, I'll tell you what, when you're done your season and you come back to Toronto, I'm going to bring you in for a tour of the studio. You can hang out with me and Ivanka Osmak for the night. You can see if this is something that you might want to do. And then I could set you up with the interview process. So that actually happened in, in, in May of that last season, three years ago. So what I did was I, I took it up. I said, Ken, that's an unbelievable buddy. I'm very interested in this. And I went, I did the tour, but I don't know if you remember. So this was three years ago. And when Sportsnet bought the rights for Hockey Night in Canada from CBC, Sportsnet tried to be like the leading like hockey channel or whatever. So what happened was is they, they brought George Stropolopoulos and all these people that were hosting Hockey Night in Canada that had nothing to do with hockey. And people just didn't react well to it. They didn't like it. The ratings were super, super low. So this was the season like before like I came for that interview. So I did my interview. I was very proud of it. I was very happy with it. Um, I got some really, really good feedback. I was supposed to do three auditions, one TV and two radio. What happened was they did a bunch of cutbacks because they had they, 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 the ratings were so bad with all the moves that they had recently done. They did a bunch of cutbacks, and it just wasn't the time that they were hiring. So that kind of didn't work out for me, which is fine. You know what I mean? I, I'm still really good friends with Ken. Ken told me that it took him six years to get into Sportsnet from when he first started trying, and now he's the, the, the anchor. He's the main guy in Sportsnet. So, so like, that's what I still want to do. That's, what I, that's my passion. I want to be the sports center guy that you guys watch every single night. You know, I want to be as entertaining as possible, as colorful as possible. I have a lot of experiences with hockey. My brother is a professional basketball player. I have a lot of insights with basketball as well. And I'm really looking forward to doing that career. I haven't taken a run at TSN yet, but I have done the sports net and I will try again. That's what I want to do for the next 25 years. I also, the whole sports agency, the whole gym thing. Me and my brother are interested in being partners and running those businesses as well. But being in front of the camera and being on the media side of sports, that's my true passion. And, you know, you've heard it here first on this podcast, you know. So if it takes six months, if it takes two years, whatever the situation, I'm going to get there eventually, guys. You're going to see me on either TSN or Sportsnet, and I'm going to give a shout-out to everybody, and I'm going to be a great, bridging the gap between everyone that wants to be a part of it and that's not a part of it now because I remember where I came from and I'm going to try to hook up as many people as I can I'm very lucky that I was able to do this podcast today guys so I hope that you guys support the podcast and everything that we do in the future here and um, I'm just I'm, I'm really happy buddy that you have me on today I really appreciate it that's my dog barking in the background because he's <laughs> mad that I'm talking so much so, well, I'll, I'll let you get to walking the dog, but, uh, no, I, I, uh, no, I hope, I hope to see you on, I want to turn the TV on and see Sean McMurray yeah, on there for a long time. Yep. But, uh, yep. no, thank you very much. You know how, uh, um, O'Neill, um, the guy that used to play for Carolina. Yeah, yeah, guy, Jack um, O'Neill, they, yeah. They, 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 they have a nickname for him. Well, I'm only going to be known as the sheriff. If I'm on TSN or Sportsnet, it's going to be the sheriff. I'm going to be as entertaining as possible, guys. I'm working on it as much as I can. I'm trying to improve my speech. I'm working on the on the, the whole 
the, the whole speech impediment thing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it all, guys. I'm, 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 I have a little voice coach and everything. So I'm going for it. And everyone like yourself that's in the media, I'm, a, I'm all about networking and that growing things together. And trust me, there's a bright future ahead in sports, especially in Canada. And I want to be a big part of that. So I, I, this is the start of me doing podcasts and stuff with guys like yourself. And, and once again, I just want to thank you for having me on the show, brother. And I know I blob on a lot, but, hey, I, but I hope that people were entertained and uh, that the message got sent. Absolutely. No, it was great. And I appreciate you taking the time. And I, I, like I said, I look forward to the day of sitting on my chair, turning the TV on and Sean McMorrow's talking back to me. And, uh, <laughs> there, and, there you and, go. uh, and hopefully this isn't your last time on the show. I'd like to get you on. Oh, we, no, no, no. I always I tell the guys, I'd like again. to kind of, anytime that you guys want me, please ask me. Oh yeah. I, I'd like love I said, to do well, it. Uh, like I said, I had Carson Shields on before and he wrote a really nice. great article about you. And, uh, yes. I've had Ken Reed's been on the show before. I've talked to Ken a lot. So, uh, right no, on, right on. Yeah. Yeah. Ken is so awesome, man. Yes, he, he is. He's a really, yeah, he, he's a good friend of mine now. He, he's given me a lot of confidence and stuff like that. And like, and guys, Carson Shields did, a, did an article on me. It's called "The Redemption of the Sheriff." It's by the Hockey Writers. It gives it gives a good insight on on like the whole jail thing and the comeback season and all that kind of stuff. But this podcast is so awesome. Everyone must support this and listen to every single one. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. And uh, I will let you go. Let's go eat some supper. And uh, thank you very much for taking out the time tonight to talk to me. And uh, we will be talking to you again. Right on, brother. Have a great night, man. You too, Sean. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. And you people that don't like fighting, how many of you did you walk out and get a coffee while that was on?